Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us for the Hands Across the TCPIP Packets, Grabork Brain Mass Jello Baked Sunscreen and Baby Oil Orgy of Mental Togetherness. This is Devan Molyneux. I am your host, which I guess makes you the parasite. Wait. No. You are the kind, wonderful, gentle, and generous supporters and donors to the show, fdrurl.com slash donate to uh, to help out with the show. All is muchly and mostly and massively appreciated. Help us out or forever hold your peace. Mikey Mike, who do we have on first? All right. Up first today is Chase. And Chase wrote in and said, what are Stefan's thoughts on buy here, pay here businesses? And does he think that they help customers or do more to harm them in the long run by being in existence? You what now? What kind of what now? Hey, Stefan. Um, Hi. Uh, basically, I should uh, probably start by kind of explaining what, what we do as a business um, and uh, go from there, give you guys an idea of, of, of that, and then go back to the question, if, if that uh, sounds good to you. I have no idea whether it sounds good to me or not, <laughs> but I'm certainly willing to listen. <clears throat> okay. So basically, we are in-house financing. We finance the same customers that we sell vehicles to. Um, We finance cars to people with either no credit or bad credit, uh, even though we have our own ways of um, seeing if somebody's potentially going to be a good customer or not. Um, And so basically, to make up for the risk that we charge, um, we charge more, uh, quite a bit more, than your conventional financing or even a secondary financing. Um, and we don't have uh, the control. Uh, the banks don't have control over us. We can kind of decide who we want to finance or who we don't want to finance to. Um, and so basically that's kind of an idea of the business. Okay, so I understand. So basically your business model is our horse has less chance of winning, so we'll pay greater odds. Uh, in other words, the greater the risk, the greater the reward needs to be to cover the cost for the bad risks. It's not that risky to lend 10 bucks to Bill Gates, but to lend $10,000 to someone who declared bankruptcy a year ago is more risky, and so you charge a premium for that risk, right? Exactly. Um, but uh, my only uh, reservation in the business, I mean, I'm already in it, but uh, is that you know we charging, we're charging quite a bit to people that um, – are on the lower income scale or middle class uh, that already can't afford a lot of things. But, uh, I mean, on the other side of that, they if we didn't provide a service, they wouldn't be um, buying the vehicles from us. Yeah, we're going to assume that at least some of those people are buying vehicles so they can get to a job, right? Exactly. I mean, there's some jobs that you, you simply – it's really tough to get to if you don't have a car, right? Exactly. Um, the, thing, the thing about it, too, is that – it's it's quite a bit more expensive to do what we do than it is to just be a used car dealership. You know, we have to hire uh, somebody just to collect on the accounts. Um, and, uh, you know, we have additional software uh, expenses that can get uh, pretty pricey. Um, you know, we have we have a lot more expense involved because we're, you know, having to track down our money. Whereas a regular used car dealership, the only time that they really uh, have to deal with the customer is on day one, and maybe the customer will come back once or twice if they have an issue or complaint. But uh, with us, um, we set up the payments to when they get paid. So if they get paid weekly, 
we uh, we get paid right after they get paid. There's no time to go out and spend that money. Um, What's your, just out of curiosity, um, what are the software costs that you're incurring over and above? <clears throat> I think it's uh, either uh, – it could be a grand or two a month. Um, my dad uh, generally does a lot of the accounting and, and billing, my dad and one other lady. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a grand or two at least to run that. But uh, – just no, but what, why do you need additional software? Um, we have to uh, be able to track everybody's payments. Um, also, the software has it built in to print all of our contracts. Um, and uh, basically just keeping track of all the accounts. And also, okay. all right. also, we report to the credit bureau, which we're one of only two of them, uh, the buyer payers in our town that do that. Uh, which requires automatic uploading of everybody's pay history into uh, the online. Right. And how many points are you guys charging? Uh, you just give me a spread, and this is anonymous, yeah. right? Nobody knows who you are, oh, so yeah. I'm just curious. No. Uh, <clears throat> so basically, uh, the interest is 18.95%. Um, and uh, But the thing about us is that a, a bank only controls um, the actual – what they can charge on interest, whereas we have uh, more room to control uh, prices. Wait, wait, I, sorry, I don't, I don't understand what that means. The bank only controls what they charge on interest. Well, they can, they, yeah, the the bank can only control the interest rate. Whereas, since we're selling the vehicle and controlling interest, we can mark up the vehicle and all, you know, more than normal, and then also charge interest. So, oh, so so. This is sort of like at a movie theater, they can charge more for the entrance fee, but then they can charge less for popcorn, or they can charge more for popcorn and charge less for the interest fee, so they have um, – you have two profit opportunities, which you can balance depending on customer needs, right? Exactly. So uh, if somebody wants to uh, – somebody wants – like they don't have as much cash up front, and they say, listen, I, I, I need to get a car because I've got a great job across town, you may lower the price of selling the car while upping the interest payments because they'll have more money after they buy the car than before. I'm just trying to dip in. Is that sort of roughly the idea? Right. But, uh, I mean, our our interest, we keep it fixed at the 18.95%. But what I was saying is the the price we can charge, um, generally on like a $3,000 vehicle, um, we try to hold like a $5,000 average gross. So we're making the money on on that and also the interest. But we're not making all that money because there's probably thirty to forty percent of our customers never pay off. So Oh really? So so somebody I mean, so you you're letting so let's say a guy wants to come in and buy a three thousand dollar car, right? Mm-hmm. Which is somewhat something up from a beater but something down from a new, right? Yeah. A, a reliable what, five, six, seven year old a car uh, and certified, I assume. So the guy comes right. in and he needs three thousand dollar he needs a three thousand dollar car. Does he have to put a down payment, or you can finance the whole thing? Uh, we basically finance almost the whole thing. Um, like tax title on license on something like that would be probably in the six to eight hundred dollar range. We're uh, we're financing over a hundred percent because most of our customers only have three hundred, four hundred dollars. So okay, so then. You set them up at uh, 18 points and change, and uh, they drive off the lot with virtually no money down, right? Exactly. Like maybe an administrative fee or, or whatever, right? Yep, doc fee, okay. but they're not paying all and the 30, fees. Sorry, so 30% 30 to 40% of your customers don't finish paying the loan? Exactly. So 
the other customers basically have to cover the costs of those. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, if you think you get rid of the welfare state by getting rid of the government, you don't understand how loans work. Because you guys guys get a giant welfare state, right? So the people who are paying off the loans are subsidizing all the people who who welch out, right? Exactly. Now, do you if if a customer can't afford a car um, anymore, is there a mechanism by which they return it? Is like can they honorably kind of get out of you know? Let's say they get fired, they, they, they you know whatever they they can't afford the car. Do they call you and say, listen, come pick it up? And uh, you know, sorry, but I mean, how do they normally get out, or, or can they, or is it basically just repo, repo time? Uh, there's all kinds of different ways. Uh, sometimes we'll uh, you know, we have to search out for the vehicle. Sometimes it's just dropped off on the lot uh, after hours. Um, sometimes they'll drop it off honorably, but uh, we always try and, you know, uh, work with them. So if there's a special situation, we'll try and uh, work things out. But, I mean, we can only hold off for so long, you know. Sometimes we'll look well, plus, I mean, payments. You have the, uh, you know, one of the biggest... One of the biggest determiners of the economic success of a country or any neighborhood is social trust, right? So uh, Milton Friedman was writing about this um, with regards to France. He said, look, capitalism has never really taken off in France because nobody trusts each other. I mean, this is a place where when the prime minister dies, his his wife is standing next to his mistress at the funeral. I mean, it's not a very honorable country, at least as far as business transactions go. Whereas if you have a kind of my word is my bond kind of business environment, then your transaction costs go way down uh, because any transaction cost that involves collection agencies and, and lawyers and small claims and all that is just a mess, right? So, so, um, so there is just a huge subsidy, right? I mean, people who are on the up and up and pay off or if something bad happens and they can't pay off, then they at least can do the right thing. But then there's a lot of people who just, you know, you know, vanish with the car, so to speak, right? Oh, yeah. Um, another thing, though, is that we completely disclose it, but we uh, put GPS, uh, hidden GPSs in all of them. So we can actually sure. find our vehicles and, you know, find our collateral. Uh, well, otherwise, you'd have to charge like 25 or 30 percent on a loan, right? Because at least in this way, you can get the cars back. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I just thought you might think it's interesting. It's kind of, I see us as being a little bit more free market because a, a bank, you know, they have more government control, whereas we're just the small guy out here trying to uh, kind of do the same thing, but in our own way. Yeah, I mean, I think that you guys are operating in a pretty cut and dried economic reality situation. I mean, You'd obviously love to lower your interest payments, uh, the, the requirement, but this is the cost of having people who are not hugely reliable. Exactly. You know, somebody somebody goes and leases, I don't know, some Lexus or something, they're very unlikely to abscond with the car, you know, or just sort of go off the grid. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's someone who goes into a bitter divorce or whatever, and then they call up the Lexus folks and say, listen, I can't fulfill my contract, and, and so on, right? And there's probably, you know, more responsible people, which is not to say that all the wealthy people are responsible, good God. I mean, there's Wall Street, after all. I mean, those guys can make off with the kind of money that somebody stealing a $3,000 car can't even dream about. So I'm not sort of trying to correlate wealth with... um uh, honesty and integrity, but you guys have a, a pretty substantial risk, and and of course you have to 
you have to eat. There's no point subsidizing to the point where you go out of business and then nobody gets a car, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, one thing uh, I think is interesting is that, you know, we don't really need a lot of uh, government uh, control um, to kind of hold us back from hurting the, the poor customers and that, you know, there's a few things that we can't do. Like, we can't uh, charge too much to our customers because we just never get it. You know, we'd get it like oh, yeah. we'd get it like two percent of the time. But and then we'd just be incurring all the taxes on the false profit. And so we really can't charge too much, you know. Uh you can charge what you what you think you can actually get, you know. And also Oh yeah, no, people people who talk about, you know, businesses ripping off people are just people who've never run a business. Yep. You know, it's like, ah, I'm going to open a steakhouse and charge $500 a steak. And it's like, yeah, good luck with that. Right. You know, they say, I think that there's at least some typo in your menu. No, no, $500 a steak. Now, excuse me while I spin in my softly rotating chair, stroking my pencil-thin mustache and my bald cat to boot. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, yeah. And and the other thing, too, is people say, ah, you know, 18.5%, that's... That's exploiting the poor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because the poor never exploit anyone. All your customers are honest, and they tell you if they (laughs) run into problems, and they never try and run off with cars or anything like that. They never lie. They never promise they're going to pay next month when they really know they can't. They never try to exploit you, right? Oh, no, never. I mean – Yeah, I I got a a big message to the socialists. The poor are not immune from being dicks. Yeah. I mean, mean, the poor can be grasping, lying, filthy-headed, scum-sucking, false, exploitive vermin, as can the rich. It's a human failing, and this idea of the noble poor uh, is uh, just complete. I mean, I worked – I don't have any experience in in what you've done, and I I worked uh, at a collections agency – not not for very long because the work was pretty dispiriting, mm-hmm. but uh, getting people to um, you know people who are behind on their gas bills, and this wasn't like you you know ah, you bastards we're gonna you know we're gonna send fire down your gas type pipes and blow up your house. <laughs> we were like, hey, you know, we need money to cover our costs. You know, we got a payroll to meet and so on. So can we figure out when you're gonna pay your gas bill? Right. And I mean, man, the. The lies that people would tell. I mean, you, you just knew it. You knew it. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I'm getting a check for my grandmother in a week and a half. So I'll I'll do it then. <laughs> you just know. Oh, yeah. You know the guy's on his way out to buy some weed. I mean, you, you just – you know it. You, you know, you can hear the yep. uh, Wizard of Oz on the background with the Pink Floyd soundtrack. And, you know, the guy's like – you phone him at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, Hello? Hello? <laughs> Hang on a sec. I need to clear my lungs. All right. Yeah, I got some money coming your way just about soon. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that they've been taking their gas money and they've been blowing it on Doritos. I mean, you, you know it. Oh, yeah. And they're just lying scumbags. And this to me is the egalitarianism. I refuse to promote any class of human beings to either devil or angel status. And having grown up around the poor, I mean the poor – 
are liars of such adeptness that they make Bill Clinton look like the myth of George Washington. <laughs> I mean, they're just – a lot of them are kind of weasel bags who will, like uh, a vampire trying to turn into smoke to get through a keyhole, just attempt to wriggle out of any situation with an endless cascade of ever-escalating falsehoods. Yeah. And not all the tr- you know, not all the poor or anything like that. But generally, the honest poor don't stay poor. You know, if if you're honest, if you're forthright, if you work hard, if you have a good attitude, well, you are almost like one in a hundred. It feels like I mean, having had a bunch of employees over the course of my life, and so the poor can be very evasive, uh, very false, and they can be as exploitive as you can. Imagine. I mean, don't you spend at least some portion of your day rolling your eyes at the at the stuff coming down the phone wire? Oh yeah, that's that's every day, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another thing I was going to say too is, uh, you know, part of the cost is that uh, I think a lot of our customers have like the rental mentality. Whereas if I'm renting this place, or if they think that they're renting the vehicle, that uh, it'll be fixed. You know, if I'm paying this price then this should be fixed when, you know, somebody like myself, it's either black and white, you know, it's either under warranty or it's not. But I mean, I can't, uh, I can't uphold that, you know, because if, if we don't fix something that's preventing them getting back and forth to work, they're just going to give up on the loan. Um, so I mean, Oh, so sometimes you do have to like offer to fix stuff. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is if we don't fix it, we'll get the car back and we'll still have to fix it. And it'd be worse, right? Yeah, and then we have to clean it, and then we have to put it back on the lot, wait the 21 days uh, by law that we have to wait before we can resell it, and then, uh, and then pay a salesperson to resell the vehicle. So it's, it's also in our best interest to try and keep that customer in the vehicle. So, I mean, we've got uh, quite a bit of money out there just on, on uh, either repairs that we just covered for the customer uh, at no charge or... Uh, uh, um, set up like a side loan for them uh, to pay on, which uh, rarely that that rarely gets paid on. Well, because they've kind of got you by the balls. They've got your property, and if they destroy the value of your property, then you're kind of in a hole. Yep. So they kind of got you by the short and curlies when they've got your property, and there's a lot of vulnerability in that. So yeah, I can say now it's a good thing you're not saying where you are or the name of your company. Otherwise, it's like, are you telling me I can go and get a car from these guys and I'll fix it for free? All right. Right. And um, yeah, listen, the the desire of the poor to get something for nothing is one of the reasons they stay poor, mm. right? I mean, uh, you know, they're just, oh, get something for nothing. I'll, I'll pay the lottery. Yeah, okay, because that's going to get you something something for nothing. Right. You know, look, look at the size of those lottery winnings. It's like, yeah, you know that they're funded by people not winning the lottery, right? Right. I mean, which is like completely, completely insane. It's like going into the First World War and saying, well, I'm sure that the gods of war have had enough to eat. They won't touch me. It's like, well, uh, no, that's not, you know. So, I mean, in the, in the poor, you know, like uh, I get something for nothing. And I think that's kind of like a low IQ phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and let me just a short rant here because this this really bothers me. You know, like you you can't run a free market system with a low IQ population. You just can't, right? Because the whole point of economics is nothing is free. And one of the basic things that happens to people who who say, well, you know, 
I know I've kind of got them by the short and curlies. They have to fix this car because otherwise it's going to be useless and, and they spin these stories and so on. They don't get that it's not free and that they are forcing other people to pay for their own thievery. They're forcing other people to pay for their own thievery. Like, I got an Obamacare subsidy. I get free health care. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're just forcing other people to pay for your doctoring yeah. and, and for your, in, your unwillingness or inability to pay for your health care beforehand. And a lot of times, public sector unions, <clears throat> that uh, you know, your own unhealthy lifestyle choices, you now must force other people to pay for them. And it is a basic point of honor that I think requires at least an average IQ, like 100 plus. You have to at least have that, I think, to fundamentally or just basic empathy, which I'm not saying people who are less intelligent can't have. But to understand that it's stealing. You know, if you're forcing this you, – these guys basically are – forcing you to pay for their repairs or they're not paying their bills and they're lying about it or they're abandoning their cars and, or they're making you spend money to go collect their dues. They're forcing other people to pay for their immorality. And it is immorality. It's lying. It's fraud. It's, it's deceitful and, uh, and it pushes costs onto other people. And, I mean, if you had an entirely, entirely honorable poor clients, poor set of clients, you could probably charge five or six points and make a fairly good income, right? But because you've got all of these false lying weasel bags, you have to charge a significant amount of money. And it really bothers me that um, people think they can get something for nothing, think they can get away with something, or think that somehow their economic decisions don't have some massive impact on uh, on everyone else. Like, exactly. my, my secret is... Um, <laughs> Despite what your government tells you, debts are very real things. It is very real. Look, you get a credit card. It's not free money party time. It's really not. And there's nothing more expensive than credit in, in many ways. Right? I mean, people who pay these like interest rates like 20% or more on their credit card bills, I mean, that's a good way to pay 500 bucks for an $80 pair of shoes. Right. What's funny and is and people so people so people have this idea that there's just somehow this this free stuff that's flying around the universe and you just got to stick out your butterfly net and catch it. Looky, every the world is Oprah. Everyone gets a car. Well, actually, they didn't get a car even because they had to pay tax on that thing as if it were a gift. A lot of people couldn't even afford to get a free car. So debt is a very real thing. And my secret, it's a weird one. I mean, for a lot of people, pay your debts. Pay your debts. Yep. Your debts are very real things. Like I used to, I used to lend money to people a lot more. But uh, as Shakespeare says, neither a borrower nor a lender be, because basically, if you lend money, you usually, if you lend money to a friend, you usually lose the money and the friendship. Hmm. And it also dulls the edge of husbandry, which means that if you borrow, you then don't end up. Uh, conserving your money as much because you get this weird free money thing. And there is this economic illiteracy that people have and say, well, if I borrow $1,000 and I only have to pay back 50 bucks a month, that's like $950 free dollars. Like, it's not that way at all. It's very, very expensive. I get wonderful credit card services for free because I am what credit, call, credit card companies call a deadbeat. Do you know what that means? 
<laughs> a deadbeat? Yeah, what do, why do credit, what do, who or what type of person does a credit card company call a deadbeat? Somebody not making their payments or somebody avoiding them, maybe? No, no, that's a profit center. Oh, some- a deadbeat to the credit card companies is somebody who pays off their balance every single month. Gotcha. Yep. And do you know why we're called deadbeats? I don't. Because we're getting all this free service. Oh, there you go. Okay. Right? Because we, we're not paying for our credit cards. Gotcha. So yeah. we get all of this wonderful infrastructure, all of this security, all of this don't have to carry cash and all this sort of stuff. We get all of this amazing infrastructure and we don't have to pay for it because we pay our bills every month. Right. And you know what? If I don't have enough money to buy something, do you know what happens? This is kind of weird. <laughs> If I don't have enough money to buy something, do you know what I do? Don't buy it. I don't buy it. I really don't. I got a budget for something. I need some piece of technical equipment for the show. Well, do I have the money? Nope. Okay. I guess I'll start saving. And if I can't pay it off within a month, in other words, within the cycle of the credit card, I don't buy it. (laughs) I mean, it's... Maybe it's growing up dirt poor. I don't know. But there's just this, there's two things. One is that I pay off my debts, and the other thing is I'll never be rich enough to buy low quality. Right? You have to buy good quality stuff because replacing mm-hmm. it is really expensive. So you know, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not rich enough to buy low quality, and if I want something and I can't afford it, I will wait until such time as I can afford it. Yep. And these rules, you know, pay your debts. I mean, I, I like using credit cards. I like getting points. And uh, I, I don't think – I can't even remember the last time that I did not pay off my credit card balance in full every single month. Well, and I- that's it, – it's, it's a pretty simple life if you just do that stuff. Just don't get seduced by that dancing harem fairy of credit. It will, you know, basically credit is just like inviting a vampire into your house. Hey, come on in. You look thirsty. I'll give you some tomato. <laughs> like, I mean, you're just going to get fried, 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 fried. And so, and now I can sort of understand that if people need, like, and, and so by this, I'm certainly not discrediting what you're doing. It can be a fantastic investment to get a car that you need to get to a job that pays well, right? I mean, if, if you can earn double your money by going across town, then okay, get a car. That's an investment. That's like going to school or like buying a house or something. I mean, it's like, like you can never be in debt. So I'm not discrediting what you're doing. But, right. you know, the vast, I mean, the average American household is $15,000 in credit card debt. Are you kidding me? $15,000 in credit card debt. I mean, that is absolutely appalling. $15,000 in credit card debt. I'm just going to do a little bit of math here. So let's see, 15000 times, let's see, times, let's just say, let's just give it 20%, right? So you're paying $3,000 a year and not even paying off your debt, right? I mean, that's some, that's some crazy stuff right there. Oh, yeah. 
And let's see, let's put that into 12 months. 250 bucks a month. $250 a month to not even pay off your debt. Just 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 to pay the interest. And that is some crazy stupid stuff. And the fact that that no economic literacy is taught in government schools is inevitable. The government doesn't want you having a shred of economic literacy. Otherwise, you'd, I don't know, be a even remotely informed voter. But uh, no, the poor can be incredible dicks. The poor can be ridiculously bad money managers. In general, lower IQ is associated with poverty. But that having been said, I think that what you guys do is a fine and honorable thing because there are poor people who need a car. Uh, I remember after, let's see, after I graduated from undergrad, I actually uh, I needed a job that was a recession on. I put an ad in the paper. <laughs> so an ad in the newspaper, it caught my eye. And uh, someone answered the ad, and he ran a courier company. And uh, he was interested uh, in me, and uh, we had a bunch of meetings. And I ended up not pursuing that opportunity for reasons that aren't particularly important now. And I ended up going back to get my uh, master's degree um, instead. But uh, I had to take like three buses to go and meet this guy. I mean, <laughs> like an hour and a half. It's like that made on two and a half men. I took three buses to meet the guy. And the first thing I would have had to do if I were to have that job would be I'd have to get a car. I couldn't, couldn't be doing all that stuff to get to, to work or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, I mean, there are times when you need a car to have a job and um, that's a good investment and the poor should have access to that. But, uh, you know, it's not – it's not hard to stop being poor. I mean, it may be hard for people who are not that smart, but it's really not that hard to stop being poor. Uh, work hard, save your money, pay off your debts, get a good credit rating, and for God's sakes, don't borrow on a credit card. If you need to, get a line of credit or something like that, which is secured against something where you're only paying a couple of points. But, I mean, lots of people are like, hey, I got a credit card. It's like, oh boy. Right. <laughs> Here comes the long rope to scoop you up and swing you like Mussolini. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt it. Go ahead. No, I just uh, I see us as being good and bad. You know, I mean, yeah, they're they're paying uh, more, but at the same time, we're giving them an opportunity to uh, get themselves out of the situation that they're in by reporting to the credit bureau. You know, um, not a lot of buy here pay here's do that. Right. Um, another thing too that always gets me is is uh, like you were saying is where they get the stuff and then they don't want to pay for it. You know, is when when we sign a, a car deal. Uh, contract they uh are okay with the price the day that they need our that they need the vehicle but then a few months later they'll come back in and say oh i'm paying five grand over kelly blue book you know it's like do you know why you're paying that you know they don't they, they have no idea on how expensive it is to be in a business you know such as what we're in well and if they had any kind of credit rating then they wouldn't be talking to you guys, right? Exactly. Right? I mean, if, if they had uh, um, a good credit rating, they'd be able to talk to a bank, right? They'd get a bank loan. Yep. And the bank will loan you out a car at a couple of points, right? Yep. It, it's, so it's, it's, be, it's because it's because they – now, this is not true for everyone, right? There are obviously people who are new to the workforce and so on. But in general, I mean, I had a good credit rating when I was in my teens, for God's sake, because, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I had a job, had bank accounts and all that. And one of the reasons that people end up talking to you guys is because they've screwed some stuff up pretty seriously, right? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at somebody's credit and they've got one or two other uh, repossessions on their credit, who else is going to finance them, you know? Right. And then they expect right. so to you... be free. <laughs> yeah. And if they, vol- if they call you up voluntarily and, and they say, listen, man, I can't, I can't, right? Then it doesn't end up being a repo, right? No, no. Uh, if somebody's in contact with us and stays in contact with us, we try and work with them as much as we can. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the only reason that they end up with a repo on their credit rating is because basically they tried to steal a car. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality. I want to keep the car. I want to have access to the car. Don't want to pay for the car. Well, you're kind of like a thief now. And that is not a good decision. And look, I mean, I, I understand that there is a very fundamental human desire of close your eyes, cross your fingers, and hope it goes away, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a very understandable human impulse, and it is a very bad human impulse that, mm-hmm. that people have with regards to that stuff. I mean – this dodge the phone and play some Xbox. Like I knew a guy when I was younger. I used to do uh, work on uh, being an extra. You can actually see me as a featured headshot in an old TV movie called Cain and Abel. Of a, I think it was a Jeffrey Archer novel or something. Anyway, and I was on some. Uh, I was in the opening shot, uh, full face of a video for some '80s band. I kind of remember now. But anyway, so I used to do this extra work just to sort of make some well. Can I dare say it? Extra money. Oh, see, this is why I don't do a lot of stand-up. Anyway, and I met this guy, and we sort of hit it off, and he was a pretty funny guy and, and so on, right? So we, um, I hung out with him a little bit here and there, but holy crap. I mean, was he ever in trouble financially? I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, he owed money to the point where he's like, hey, man, you want to call me? Okay, here's how you call me. First of all, you call the phone, you let it ring once, then you hang up. Then you call the phone, you let it ring twice, <laughs> then, you ring, then you hang up. Then you call me back, let the phone ring four times, then you hang up. And then you call me and I'll pick up. And I'm like, are you in witness protection program? He's like, no, man, I owe some money. And I think it was like not even to a formal organization, if you catch my drift. Um, <laughs> the people who would probably repossess bits of your anatomy rather than some car. And I was like, holy crap. I mean, I didn't obviously hang out with the guy very much past that but i was like oh man what a um like what a horrible scary life of uh being in debt oh yeah uh, it's horrible and this overhead of douchebags like the douchebag tax in human society (laughs) is really really annoying like way back in the day again i'm sorry to give you all these war stories but you know i mean i sort of want to reinforce the point that we're making so when i was at um uh, Glendon College is a campus of York University where I did two years, I think, of of an English degree before going to uh, before going to theater school. And I used to do uh, a radio show there uh, back in the day. I mean, please don't get me wrong; it was not much of a radio show. I think it was basically just broadcast uh, on campus. And there was a guy there. Uh, I, I can't remember if he had a show or not, but there was a guy there who had this great idea for a scam, you know, because this is way back in the day. ATMs had just come out, like automatic teller machines, and this was, like, shocking. I mean, trying to explain to people what it was like when you could only get to the bank from, like, 10 o'clock till 3 o'clock Monday to Thursday 
was it's kind of mind blowing. You know, <laughs> didn't get three oh five. You have no weekend <laughs> because you have no money or any way <laughs> uh, to to get it. And this guy was, you know, oh, I've got a great idea, right? So uh, he was the first guy to figure out, oh, you know, if you you can go to a bunch of different ATMs, you can only take out 150 bucks per transaction, but if you go to 10 ATMs across the city, blah de blah de blah, you can get 1500 bucks out before they even check your account, and blah de blah de blah, right? <laughs> nice. And I was like, ah, oh, douchebag tax, you son of a bitch, because now I have to pay all these stupid fees because they have to put all this extra code in. To make sure you don't take out more than you're supposed to at different bank machines, we got to put in douchebag defense system, which I have to pay for, you tool, you unbelievable parasitical tool. It's people like you that make people like me pay through our asses for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And the douchebag tax is really annoying, and there will obviously be some of that in a free society, but not that much. But, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, people like that. They're just so annoying. I got a system. I got a scam. No. No. You're taking my goddamn money, you unbelievable time thief. I now have to work an extra 20 minutes a week or half an hour a week to pay for all the shit that the banks and credit card companies have to do because of douchebags like you. Yep. You predatory motherfuckers. And so, yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that what you're doing is great. You give people an opportunity for a second chance um, and a lot of times they got themselves into that sort of bullshit by taking out loans before and then crossing their fingers and hoping it was going to go away and sometimes that works of course right and in that you guys will sometimes just take the car and say screw it guys got no assets what can we do right yeah everything's but I'm, I, but I'm glad that there's a, I'm really glad that there's a credit report yeah. I love credit reports love them love them because that means douchebags pay and good people don't Yep, and uh, I, mean, I can go and yeah, I can go and get a loan if I want at a um, couple of points interest because I have spent low these thirty-five years paying off my debts, I, and and when I didn't have money, I didn't spend the money. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was in uh, Montreal for uh, at McGill doing my undergrad in history. There was a student newspaper that came out, and in it there was a coupon which was two-for-one uh, sub shop, two-for-one sub shop. I mean, I would go and I would get all those student newspapers and I would take out those ads and I would get two-for-one 12-inch veggie subs, put some in the freezer, put some in the fridge, and I could live on that. And I could get a souvlaki for $2.75 that basically was like swallowing a small Greek brick <laughs> with yogurt, and that would keep me pretty full. For a while, there was a Peel Pub in Montreal – where for $1, I could get eggs, toast, and all-you-can-drink coffee, where I would sit with the wonderful Iranian director uh, who directed me in Shakespeare's Macbeth when I played Macbeth, and uh, I would continually remind him that he could not replace all of his bodily fluids with coffee, uh, because at one point he told me that he'd sat there so long and drank about 20 coffees, he ended up having to go to the hospital because his heart was palpitating. Not a guy who was very much into deferred gratification, but he came from the upper strata of Iranian, or as he would call it, Persian society. And so you could – I mean, no, I cooked and all that sort of stuff too, but man, you could not spend a lot of money and you could um, – uh, live pretty pretty damn cheap, and that's what I did. I remember one winter in Montreal, which is a really, really cold city. One winter in Montreal, I barely turned on the heat. 
<laughs> wake up in the morning and see my breath in the air because I needed to save money because heat was very expensive. As it turns out, you didn't even pay for heat. They just gave you the average of what it cost last year. So the person who moved in after me got a very good year. I didn't. I just freeze my nipples off. But you just stop spending. Stop spending. Stop spending the money. Don't buy what you can't afford and pay back your debts. It's not that complicated, but it seems to be for a lot of people. All right, that's the end End of my rant. Yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't instituted a, a new plan. Uh, I got in touch with a company that uh, does recredit pair to try and help uh, give my customers, when they buy a car from us, the opportunity to uh, deal with this company for free to help them build up their credit. And uh, like I had like one customer ever use it, so... We stopped paying for it because nobody used it. Oh, man, that's sad. Yeah. And people are like, well, it's just a number. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's a, and so is your blood pressure. doesn't mean it's irrelevant. So oh. is your penis side, but we add penis size, but we add an inch to everything, right? So, I mean, I don't know. It's, yep. It is sad. And look, I get it. I mean, there are some people who aren't as smart as other people. You know, right. this this is the old Christian idea of the soul that we're all equal in the eyes of God. It's like, well, maybe we are all equal in the eyes of imaginary beings, but in the very real world of brain capacity, we are not equal. <laughs> and uh, I think it's sad. I sort of hesitate to sort of get overly frustrated and upset with people who have an IQ of eighty because they have an IQ of eighty, and I think Coco the gorilla, <laughs> Coco the gorilla, tested at seventy five, so. <laughs> You know, it's hard to get angry at a gorilla for having a bad credit rating. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just one of these sad things that uh, you just shake your head and say, what what the hell is wrong with people? Right. I mean, there's no free lunch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You don't need to be a brain surgeon to figure that one out. Nobody thinks that Lars and the Real Girl has a real girl. It's just a doll, right? <laughs> and this idea that there's just all this free stuff out there, if you can just figure out some angle – uh, it, it, it fundamentally alienates people from other human beings. I mean, A, you have to not have much empathy in order to end up ripping off other people. And B, it permanently, I think, detaches you from having empathy. Right. Because when you do wrong, when you cheat people, when you rip people off, and I'm obviously not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who don't pay for their cars, which they mm-hmm. voluntarily sign up to pay for. But when you don't uh, do the right thing, empathy becomes your enemy. Because if you ever do develop empathy, I don't know how you would, but if you ever did develop empathy, what would happen is you'd actually start to feel bad for the people you ripped off. And that is uh, pretty bad. Uh, It's a pretty bad experience. It's why I'm not hoping for a lot of, uh, I don't know, suddenly sprouting consciences from the wolves of Wall Street, so to speak, right? I mean, Bernie Madoff's not going to wake up one day and say, oh, you know what? I've suddenly got a lot of empathy. Wow. Did I ever rip off a lot of people who trusted me? Um, I mean, what would he do? He'd just throw himself off a bridge. Uh, Empathy is a survival mechanism when you're in a loving, happy set of relationships. But empathy becomes a huge and, and I think will kill you if you develop it later. And so if you've spent your life sort of cheating and ripping people off and lying to people and scamming people and so on, I genuinely believe, I don't know, but I genuinely believe that if you were to magically, you know, be given the power of empathy after you've been a cheating, lying parasite, I literally think you'd like you'd wake up and you'd look in in the mirror with such horror that you just throw yourself off a cliff. I actually think it becomes a base survival mechanism to do all that you can to avoid 
the perils of empathy after you've become uh, a sort of irredeemably bad person. In other words, you've done so much wrong that you can't possibly uh, give recompense to it. Yeah. And people's ability to not pay back stuff has always been a surprise to me. I mean, I lent a friend of mine 800 bucks back in the day. I mean, this is like 25 years ago. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That's a lot of money now. But back then, it'd be like a couple of grand. And, uh, man, I had to really push him to get the money back. Right. That woman I, I lent to, to uh, $2,000 to, and uh, holy crap. I mean, it's really, you know, uh, hey, where's my money? I mean, I, I am not a rich man. Where is my money? Oh, you know, it's coming. It's like, no, just give me – it doesn't get frustrating. Just tell me the truth. If you're not going to pay it back, just tell me. You know, just, just – but this weaselly, foggy, jello-up-the-nose crap that people give you. Um, yeah, really to, to hound this this person. Oh, yeah. I once put a deposit down uh, on a condo. The guy said, listen, i got to check with whoever I'm going to be living with. I'm not sure. Uh, not condo, a, a rental place. And then my roommate ended up not liking it. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, if you don't like it, I'll give you the, the deposit back. And uh, um, I, I ended up going back to the guy and saying, listen, I need my deposit back. Guy doesn't like it. He's like, oh, no, I never said that. I'm like, oh, man. So, yeah, it, it, it's just people are just annoying. They just make people cautious. And, you know, I mean, if we could have a life or a world wherein people would just tell the truth, uh, boy, <laughs> would we ever have a paradise and, and economic growth would be enormous. You know, okay. we could overcome even the uh, the predations of government if we all just committed to telling the truth about things that sure as hell would make your job easier, right? Oh yeah. One thing one thing I hear you talk a lot about is uh is kind of you know defooing uh, with people uh, that are uh, maybe you know government status. You know, and one thing that I see is like I'm surrounded by irrational people every day. You know. Um, and I see you know, people, yeah, <laughs> right. And, and I, I think I'm smart enough to see through a lot of the BS, but it still uh, makes me wonder if I was surrounded by some people who actually, uh, you know, thought more like you and I, what I would uh, be able to accomplish there. Uh, well, that's you know, that's a big question, right? And and um, this question of voluntary. You know relationships and, and our relationships to status. Just for those who don't know, I talked about it. Gosh, I don't know, six years ago in in a whole series of podcasts. Uh, I think four podcasts called Ron Paul versus Personal Liberty, specifically aimed at people who were supporting Ron Paul with massive amounts of time and money and energy and effort and focus and all that. And um, my case was that you can probably get better leverage in convincing people about the sincerity of your cause if you say to people who are status, do you like you ask the question, do you, do you support the use of violence against me? And status do. They, you know, if you don't want to pay your taxes, then they support you being thrown in jail. If you don't, like if you smoke drugs, uh, uh, marijuana, and therefore the war on drugs, then they support you being thrown in jail for a personal habit that does initiates no force against uh, anyone and it's not you know my recommendation has never been of course it's parodied this way or caricatured this way my recommendation has never been wake up tomorrow and ask everyone if they're an anarchist and everyone who says no never see them again that's never <laughs> never been my recommendation it's just a bunch of nonsense that's put forward by people but my recommendation is that 
it is a basic reality that status support the use against a force against you for following your conscience. I mm-hmm. find that the Western meddling in the Middle East is reprehensible, immoral, destructive, and puts my friends and family at risk of retaliation. And um, I, I think I, I consider it a gross, underhanded, malevolent violation of my of the sanctity of my conscience to be forced to pay for military adventures uh, in the Middle East. Uh, I, I consider it just horrendous. And people who support the state and who support those that war, they 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 want me thrown in jail for not wanting to fund imperialism. They they want me thrown in jail. That is a reality, and people can get upset at that all they want. And I give, couldn't give a shit about people who get upset about it. What I care about is find a way to disprove it. We well, get this weird thing in the world now where people are like, "I'm upset." It's like so. I mean, philosophy don't give a shit. I got upset about having cancer. My cancer didn't give a shit, right? I mean, who cares? I mean, I don't know if it's some female influence. It's like, I'm upset. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I guess if you're a young, attractive woman, people care. But <laughs> when you grow up as a man, I'm upset. I mean, <laughs> there's this guy who was the, uh, the president of Harvard, I think it was. And he was asked why there aren't more women in the STEM fields. What's it? Science, technology, engineering, Medicine? I can't remember the last one is. Anyway, so and he said, I don't. He said, I don't know. Maybe you know. Maybe it could be a bunch of reasons. But maybe one of them is that men and women's brains could be a little different, right? And of course, men's brains are better at spatial recognition, of which STEM fields kind of work that way, right? And uh, yeah, sorry, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Thanks, Mike. Uh, if you could get me the guy's name, I think it was Larry Saunders or something like that. It'd be great. Anyway, so so he said this. And there were women in the audience who who got up and ran out of the room. <laughs> like, I, I, the woman was like, I thought I would faint. I thought I was going to throw up. Ah! And I'm like, are you kidding me? So you hear an appearance, uh, sorry, you hear a, a, an argument or a perspective that you disagree with. And your impulse, ladies, is to run out of the room and feel like you're about to throw up. Could you be more of a hysterical Victorian female cliche if you tried? I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was on a debating team for a couple of years when I was in college, and sometimes I came up against some really good debaters. And I actually, I did really well. I came in like sixth out of all of Canada the first year I tried out of thousands of debaters. And... I was pretty good, but there were some people who were really good. And, I mean, the idea that, that if if I felt I might be losing a debate, that I would run out of the room. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't say it. I'm, I'm going to run out of the room, hyperventilating into a paper bag and saying that I feel like I'm going to throw up. And this is what happened. Yeah, the guy's name is Lawrence Summers. He just spec- He just put out some speculation. That's crazy. About you know, possible reasons as to why there aren't as many women in the STEM fields, right? And uh, holy crap! I mean, the women are oh, oh! I can't believe what he said. That I need my vapors. <laughs> I mean, like, basically, they, they're acting like Blanche Dubois hit with a electroconvulsive therapy, and it's like, oh boy, that must be nice. It must be nice to have people care about you being offended and upset. I mean, as a man, it doesn't doesn't really work that way, you know. Hey, I get offended by I get offended by my tax bill. I see me running out of the room, hyperventilating and saying I'm going to throw up, and that's a real issue. 
But um, I don't know. It's just strange to me that there are people in this world who think that well, I'm upset. And so, yeah, so I put these arguments out about statism and personal relationships. And it's like people say, well, I, I'm upset. I don't like that argument. That argument seems mean to me. Uh, are you like, are you just saying you should just get rid of everyone who disagrees with you? It's like, well, at least I'm not saying I should put them in fucking jail. That's what the statists are saying. Get thee to a fucking jail. Get thee to a rape room. And oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then, of course, the feminists didn't even get upset about Clinton's reported or reputed serial groping of everything with a pulse and at least two out of three titties. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just this. I'm upset. I just I find that it's so sad. I mean, part of me is like, you idiots. And part of me is like, well, how sad that is. How sad that is that people will talk about being upset with my arguments. You know, like, who care? Who gives a shit if you're upset? Who gives a shit if I'm upset? I mean, it literally is like the Pope talking to Galileo. I, I'm upset. <laughs> but what's the truth of the matter? I'm upset. Um. And, uh, and, and this, what this guy, the guy, he landed a... He landed a spaceship on a comet. I mean, that's a little bit beyond lunar lander for those who had a few quarters too many in the in the eighties. A guy landed on a comet. He landed. That's like hitting a bullet with a bullet. I mean, that that's incredible. And he wore a T-shirt with some women in bikinis on it that was actually given to him by a woman. And he's crying. His moment of greatest triumph. He's crying. I mean, you don't see men picketing Chippendales for fuck's sakes, because those greased-up, mega squatting and <laughs> crunching bastards. Oh, it's just oh my god! You're so objectivizing these men. I mean, <laughs> oh my god! It's a shirt for God's sakes. I mean, yeah, because all all women are into Brad Pitt for his brain because he's just so smart. Which is why you see all these women with pinups of Stephen Hawking hyperventilating from his chair. And the woman who gave him his t-shirt is a feminist. But he wore a t-shirt with some semi-clad women on it in the moment of his greatest scientific triumph. One of the greatest scientific triumphs that the public consume without getting confused. And women are all, you better apologize. Because I didn't know that women had belly buttons until I saw that shirt. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Has he beaten any women up? No. Is he a rapist? No. Has he sexually harassed anyone? No. But I guess he doesn't have the power to protect abortion like Bill Clinton, so he doesn't have feminists willing up to say, oh, I'll give him a hummer if he'll keep Roe v. Wade. <laughs> My God. It must be. I can't, I can't imagine the world that people live in. Especially women. I mean, it's young, attractive women in particular. And this is not all, not all young, attractive women do this. I'm just saying. Sort of reminds me of this old Dilbert cartoon where the, the, the engineers are in a sensitivity exercise and Dark Bird is running it. And he says to the engineers, all right, I want you guys to just, just imagine for a moment that you're a, a woman. And one of the engineers says, whoa, someone's offering to buy me drinks. <laughs> and then another one says, wow, people are being nice to me for like no, no reason at all. And another one says, I can't find my keys. And another one says, my shirt slowly flutters to the floor. Stop! 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 No more! The exercise is over! And uh, that's what it's like. I mean, I just, 
I'd love to, I would love to be reincarnated as a sexy woman. I think that would be an absolutely fascinating experience. I mean, to just walk through the world and have people be nice to my eggs in the form of me. I just think that would be fascinating. Anyway, so that's sort of neither here nor there. I just think it would be a completely fascinating <laughs> experience. Like this woman who was um, walking down the street in New York City who got harassed, uh, apparently, uh, for walking down the street. And, uh, oh, man, there's so much to say about that. <laughs> we won't necessarily get into it all. But first of all, there's another video of a guy who's a model walking down the street, a good-looking guy, and he gets harassed uh, like crazy as well uh, by, by women. Uh, secondly, uh, for this woman walking down the street in New York, you know, uh, it does not look like these men are on their lunch breaks. <laughs> from work it was a weekday it was the middle of the weekday and these guys are all kind of lounging around just lounging around can you say well for a state i think you can and uh because there you know there's there's nothing that civilizes sexists more than getting into the workforce Mm -hmm. right because if you're a sexist pig in the workforce you're not going to keep your job but if you if you're on welfare yeah you could be a sexist pig whether you're male or female and they're not going to cut off your welfare check for that. So the basic civilizing influence of actually having a job is um, is, is absent. Uh, and also, I mean, I, not, well, not, not, a lot of, not a lot of white guys who were catcalling this woman. And now people sort of pointed it out that, that just about everyone who catcalled this woman was black or Hispanic. And in New York, of course, there's a disproportionate amount of sex crimes that occur for the black and Hispanic community, like wildly disproportionate, which is why rape culture is never specifically targeted at any particular race or culture, which by st- statistics it should be. But um, uh, they said, oh, yeah, well, white guys did catcall too, but uh, I guess we never quite got that on film or there were sirens or, you know, it's just like, yeah, well, you know. Uh, there's an uncomfortable truth about all of this that you got a bunch of non-white guys hanging around in New York who are harassing women, and there's a, um, a homosexual version too, right? Guy, you, you saw this one, Mike. I didn't. Uh, I don't have my um, uh, Google alert set to new gay porn, but Mike, you <laughs> you saw something? <laughs> yeah, there was the a homosexual male version of the walking in New York City for three hours and getting harassed, and he was getting treated pretty brutally by both men and women coming up to him, so... Wait, so, wait, he was he was a gay guy? Mm-hmm. Or someone now, pretending I mean, what to be was a it? gay guy, I'm not exactly sure about that, but... Uh, but, but how, okay, how do you pretend to be a gay guy? That I need to He know. was wearing the tightest t-shirt and pants imaginable and carrying a pink bag. It, uh... Yeah, it was a bit over the top. <laughs> That might <laughs> now, was he harassed by men who were homophobes, or was he just harassed by men who wanted a piece of those that, that chicken hawk stuff? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone. Well, I, I remember, so again, way back in the day, when I, um, I, I seem to have ended up with a whole bunch of gay roommates. Maybe it's the accent. I don't know. But I ended up, and there was this guy who was a ballet dancer and a really nice guy. I actually liked him a lot. But um, he basically came out and he said, like, holy crap. You wouldn't believe the amount of like sinister predatory interest in me that came out of the gay community when I came out because he was a ballet dancer. So, of course, he had a fantastic figure, right? a great body, you know, lean and, and long legs and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, I mean, the, the amount of harassment he got in the gay community um, was uh, significant and, uh, and uh, alarming. 
So anyway, I just sort of wanted to mention that, that anyway, I don't know where the hell we ended up with that. Anyway, anything else? I've got to get on to the next caller. Thank you for the springboard to, to Ranfest that you provided. I hope it wasn't too dispiriting for you. Yeah. Um, do you uh, do you have time for one more question? It's another topic or, or I can always call in another time. If you can, if it's quick. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you've done uh, quite a few of uh, the economy videos on to prepare yourself accordingly. And I was yeah. just wondering, uh, that's that's kind of uh, I've done some things to prepare myself accordingly, but I was just kind of curious on what you've done uh, in your personal life to prepare yourself accordingly. I mean, I've I've talked about it before. I mean, I think having some diversity of assets, I think, is important. Uh, I think recognizing that uh, money may lose some value, I think that's important. Uh, I think uh, you know, you see if you can get some um, something that um, is is a real thing. Like if you can translate cash into stuff that has value that doesn't depreciate mm-hmm. uh, then i think that's a useful thing you know maybe get a couple of bitcoins by doing some work from people who can pay you in bitcoins or something like that right and uh, a little bit of gold and you know just diversify um i've not read it but there's i, I get the general understanding harry brown the late harry brown uh uh, had a book, uh, basically, you know, 25% stocks, bonds, cash, and gold, I think was his. I, please don't quote me on it because it's Permanent Portfolio was the name of the book. The permanent, a lot of people swear by it. Yeah, the Permanent Portfolio. I thought that involved a perm. So for me, I was not particularly <laughs> – anyway. Cryptocurrencies uh, <laughs> have kind of thrown that up in the air though because now, uh, you know, had the four categories and now you're throwing kip- cryptocurrencies in the mix. And do they kind of take the place of gold or do they not? It's been a lot of conjecture, right. but – Interesting and worth reading, nonetheless. And can I just say one other thing? Yeah. Oh, the people who say, well, if there's no electricity, you don't have any Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> if there's no electricity, your missing Bitcoins will be the least of your worries. Exactly. <laughs> if there's no electricity, you won't have any food. <laughs> what, so. what about uh, as far as like food? And uh, I know you're in Canada, so some things you may not want to say if you do have them, but you know, like, I've got uh, some weapons here, and I've got a, uh, I've got some body armor ready, and some if you're night living vision. in Ferguson. Uh, some night vision, a hand weapon, right now. Yeah, I've got some night vision ready, uh, and I, I've kind of uh, gotten into four wheel drives as well. So, just uh, kind of trying to diversify uh, that as well. Yeah, look, I, I think that. I, I think having some extra food is a good idea no matter what because you may have noticed that the price of groceries has been kind of heading through the roof over the last couple of years. Yep. I mean, it's mental going to the grocery store. I'm like <laughs> a big giant tech taper on my forehead so my brain doesn't explode when I see the prices in combination with the lowered ingredient list, like size. The cost is going up and the portions are going down. It's like, what are we getting further away from the Earth here? I mean, we're in some sort of giant interstellar spaceship. We got to ration ourselves for the next two hundred years. <laughs> so I think having some, you know, just buy some some food and you know stick it in the basement. You know, worst case scenario, you're going to save a hundred bucks or more off your grocery bill by just going with your your space food, right? So yep. I think that's not a bad idea in general. Um, but uh, and and know know the people who are around you. And, uh, yeah. you know, if you can get any relationships going with farmers, I think that's a good, uh, a good idea and, um, all that. So, yeah, uh, yeah, there's lots of things that you can do. You can, you know, join a co-op, uh, farming and, uh, le- learn some stuff about how to grow. If you've got any land, plant a garden. I mean, I'm not, I'm not expecting it to get to that point, but it's not bad stuff to do as a whole. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not going to harm you to, to know more about, 
food and, and all that. But yep. have a community. You know, when I was just thinking about this today, the degree to which, you know, the the degree to which the government wanted women out of the family and into the workforce, Aaron Russo has talked about it, and uh, you can look at that uh, on the internet, uh, on YouTube, double uh, A-R-O-N-R-U-S-S-O. But another thing I was thinking about as well is when you get women into the workforce, and by that I mean sort of out of raising kids, there's a real community. I didn't really know much about this community because I grew up uh, in a sort of dirt poor working mom environment, so there really wasn't much of a community. But you know, now that I'm older and being a stay-at-home dad, there's you know, for people like for the women who stay home, and I'm usually the only guy around, right? But for the women who stay home, there's a real community there. And when you get those women to go to work, the, that community breaks down, and, and that's a power vacuum that the state rushes into. Right. If you know your neighbors, you don't really fear for much. Yep. Uh, people will people will help you out. You know, if you help out people, you get the reciprocal bonds of obligation going, and so on. Exactly. And so I think that's you know get get to know the people around you. We have this kind of atomic lifestyle that's provided by the state, and I think that's actually not that great uh, for yep. a uh, uh, for, for the long run. So that's uh... you don't want to start trying to develop relationships with your neighbors if the shit hits the fan. You kind of want to have that. Ahead of time, and yep. uh, I think that's uh, I think that's pretty important. Like you'll notice that in like World War Z and stuff like that, it's like, well, you don't need your neighbors if you are XCIA death machine who can fade into a cloud and <laughs> you know survive bits of burning shrapnel uh, running through your innards and all that kind of stuff, and inject yourself with fatal illnesses and make yourself. So if you're like if you're basically a comic superhero, you don't need a community. But you know, I don't know about you, but my capacity to survive bits of red-hot engine casing skewered through my innards uh, is probably not as much as uh, Brad Pitt's uh, modesty allows him to be. So I would say that uh, um, uh, it's really all about the community because that's what we're going to need when the government shrinks. The government's going to shrink or it's going to (laughs) grow. Look at that. I'm predicting, right? (laughs) I mean, obviously, I'm aiming for it to shrink. But um, uh, so the government's going to shrink. It doesn't mean we're not going to we're still going to need some stuff that the government provides and some security and so on. And, um, you know, why, why do people feel this need for Obamacare? Well, because uh, they don't have a community. You know, people uh, don't have a community of like-minded people around them who will help them out with, you know, medical bills or whatever, right? right. So anyway, it's just a – I mean, it's not as it's not as simple as get some stuff and hunker down. It really is around reach out and build up a community of people. Oh, yeah. um, that that you trust and who can trust you, I think that's important. I mean, that's, look, and what harm is that going to do you anyway, right? Right. There, there's a guy on uh, YouTube, very popular, uh, called Nut and Fancy, and he has a video on that where everybody kind of does their, like, what they're good at. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah, I mean, and you can see this. Like, how many people only get to know their neighbors when there's uh, some massive power failure? It's right. like, well, no, that's not, <laughs> it's not the time, you know? Or when eight feet of snow suddenly falls on your uh, your hometown within the span of, I don't know, a couple of days. <laughs> right. Yeah, Mike, we're trying to talk practicalities, <laughs> not just theory <laughs> at the moment. As someone who lives in Buffalo, New York, this has been an interesting week. We'll put it that way. <laughs> or what used to be known as Buffalo, New York, and now it's known as the bottom of a snow globe that won't stop. <laughs> Indeed. Didn't some guy, like, what's this? I don't know if you know the story behind this, Mike, but... 
I was reading how some guy basically died. This 46-year-old guy died in his car under 15 feet of snow. I I know one guy, um, someone died. Close the sunroof. (laughs) Oh, there's people stranded out on the highway. I don't know if it's the case right now, but it was coming down so fast that people got stuck in their cars and they thought that they were going to get through. You know, oh, it's just a slowdown in traffic. It'll clear up and we'll push through. And an hour passed or half an hour passed and snow was coming down so quick, their cars pretty much got buried. And they had nowhere to go, so it's all sit here with the heat on. And yeah, I know some someone died trying to push someone else's car when it got stuck and ended up get hit, getting hit by another vehicle. And a couple people had medical emergencies and couldn't get to the hospital, and they died. It's a, it's quite the deal up here. Yeah, and there was a, a women's basketball team stuck for seventeen hours on their bus really? to the point where they're like eating snow, and the coach was traveling with her one-year-old baby. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's 17 hours uh, on a bus not getting anywhere. Get, even getting places is pretty tough to spend that time on a bus. But, yeah, it's uh, it's some serious stuff. I mean, it's like when there's a heat wave, you know. I mean, people without air conditioning, they can they can die. When they, although, generally, I think it's a cold snap that's more problematic. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a significant – it's not just like, wow, that's a lot of snow. I guess I've got some shoveling to do. But, yeah, it's uh, people can die. So you don't see anything being uh, long-term. You see it as uh, either government's going to – uh, get smaller or turn into, you know, they'll just take over on everything. Capitalism doesn't work. No, no, I don't, I don't look, I mean, I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a done deal. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing all this crazy stuff on the internet and there's easier ways to make a living. So I don't think it's a done deal. I, I feel that I have a responsibility as somebody who's fairly good at communicating this stuff. I feel I have a responsibility to jig the game, right? I want to put my fingers on the scales of liberty, so to speak. Right. Uh, I don't want to just wait because, you know, I mean, the, I, I really believe in that old adage that's the only thing that is good. Sorry, the only thing that is necessary for evil f- to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Yep. And so as somebody who's got a fairly bully pulpit in talking about these ideas, I really feel I have a responsibility in the same way that, you know, if you're a doctor and uh, you know how to do the Heimlich maneuver and somebody's choking – you should go and help that person. I sort of feel like if you with, – with ability comes responsibility. And this is not a moral argument. I just feel it's a very compelling aesthetic argument. And so I don't feel like it's a done deal. I mean if it was a done deal, I'd be like, okay, well, I guess I'll uh, do something else for a living sometimes. Uh, feel like it. And, uh, but but it's, it's not a done deal. But I do genuinely believe that the lesson of the free market is fairly well understood. Mm-hmm by the powers that be, which is why when there is a panic these days, there is often um, a, at least a, a move towards shrinking government. doesn't often happen. Like even Scott Walker uh, in Wisconsin was, you know, went through the humiliation, uh, so to speak, of having a recall election that he won with an even higher percentage of the votes than the first time around. And so that there is – I think there is an understanding and, you know, there is this pathetic, pitiful groping towards the Republicans these days as people are desperate to ward off amnesty for these, you know, four or five million Americans, which is not that complicated a thing to figure out. It's that they'll cost $24,000 a year in services on average and they'll they'll pay $10,000 a year in taxes. So – so that's $14,000, at least in the first year or two, that people will have to pay for each immigrant or 
Wow. Illegal immigrant is the wrong word because if it's if if they're legal, they're an immigrant. If they're not legal, they're not an immigrant. Uh, but um, so I mean, there is an an aesthetic, right? Which is that this was supposed to. I mean, America was supposed to be sort of white Western Christian Protestant nation, and uh, multiculturalism has its challenges, to say the least. Uh, I mean, just ask the Jews how multicultural they want Israel to be, or how multicultural uh, how 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 J- the Japanese leaders view American multiculturalism, whether it's strength. I mean, outside of food and music, if somebody can tell me the economic and political benefits of multiculturalism, I'd be fascinated to hear them. I hear a lot of negatives, but I don't hear any practical positives outside of food and music, which are great. But um, uh, so there, there, so people are you know, swinging towards the Republicans because they believe that the Republicans are somehow ideologically committed to uh, to small government. And they could be. Uh, certainly if I was involved in the Republican Party, I'd be counseling like, just go for it. Like, I mean, <laughs> go for smaller government or die trying. But don't do this uh, trying to woo all sides of the electorate. And, you know, I mean, there are people who are never going to vote for you, so screw them. Like, they're, sorry. They're people who are too conflicted in the political system to have any kind of rational vote. The people who are getting stuff from the government are not ever going to vote for shrinking the government. That is a basic reality that the Republicans have yet to process. You know, the people with the I hate Coldplay website are not the people you go and try and sell your Coldplay tickets to. This is just something that (laughs) you need to figure out as the Republicans stop trying to placate the leftists who are going to call you racist, scum-sucking teabaggers anyway. Uh, just go and, and deal with your core constituency. Talk about smaller government. There are people on the black and Hispanic side who want smaller government. And they're as frustrated. Uh, I mean, good Lord. I mean, the blacks are not that keen on the illegal immigrants because a lot of Hispanics hate the hell out of the black population. I mean, just look at what's going on in Los Angeles in the schools. I mean, the, the riots and gang fights. I mean, it's brutal. And massive floods of illegal immigrants are not going to do a fantastic amount of positive benefit to the wages of black people. Anyway, I'm going to get here or there, yeah. but they just need to figure out that, you know, it's, it's the one great breakthrough that I had years and years and years ago, which is not only is it okay to be hated, it is essential to be hated. Right. And and if you are trying – and politicians, of course, they want to play the room. They want to be liked. But, and they don't like being hated. I understand that. I mean it's not like you wake up in the morning and go, yay, I'm hated. <laughs> I get that. But if you are committed to a virtue, then everybody that those virtues costs will not like you. Of course. Of course. I mean, how could it be otherwise? Aiming to be in politics without offense is simply selling the future for the sake of contempt in the present. Uh, And so, um, in my opinion, the media is heavily controlled by the left. And therefore, when you talk – and by the left, I basically mean communists. Uh, They are – I mean, socialistic for sure, heavily – Heavily communist. I mean, they, I can't remember any time anybody on the left has talked about cutting the government in any significant fashion. Even when they tried under the Clinton years to end welfare as we know it, I mean, it's all bullshit and it's all bigger now than it ever was. 
and social spending in particular, spending on social programs, goes up faster under Republicans than it does under Democrats because the Republicans are absolutely and totally unwilling to take the necessary stand to actually shrink the size and power of government until every single leftist newspaper is screaming absolute blue murder about the Republicans, I will pay them no attention. The mo- like Every time Republicans get pe- praised for bipartisanship, you just know that they've just sold off another one of your grandchildren's kidneys for the sake of – I mean, at least be hated. Nobody's going to – I mean, the people who aren't going to vote the Republicans, at least they should fear the Republicans, <laughs> right? I mean, at least they should hate the Republicans. But they put up with the Republicans because – in my mind, the Republicans – I mean, Rand Paul shouldn't be down there trying to woo – I mean, it's like crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff. Take your stand. Take your stand. I mean, you could say to the population if you wanted – this is why I'd never be in politics. You say to the population, hey, you know when we had open borders, the 19th century? Wasn't that great? I thought that was wonderful. I mean, unless you were actually coughing up Thomas Duncan out of your left lung, you could come into the country. And work, and I think that's great. You know what we didn't have in the 19th century? Massive welfare programs. Yeah. Government provided health care, government provided pensions, all of the Bismarckian socialist crap that ended up with Europe going to the war in the First World War over. So, you know, hey, let's uh, uh, open borders. Fantastic. Let's do open borders. We've had it before. We know that they work. We know there's some conflicts, some challenges, and so on. Let's open up the borders. Absolutely, completely, and totally great. But if you want open borders, which is a 19th century revolution, then you don't get the 20th century socialistic crap with welfare states and uh, SNAP and uh, food stamps and uh, all this. I mean, you just. Yeah, you know, you, you can't have both. You can't have a welfare state and open borders because that will kill the birth rate of the domestic population because it becomes too expensive to raise children and people want to check out of the economy because they don't want to work 80 hours a week to fund people who are coming in. I mean, they don't want to do it to fund people already here. But this is, of course, what Republicans won't get into because they don't want to have that Ragnarok showdown with the leftist press, which I understand because the leftist press will dig up every piece of scumduggery that they can find and throw it at everyone. And they just hope that they can somehow get away with shrinking the government without confronting all the parasites and their hosts who are dependent on the government. And that includes the rich as well as the poor. And uh, so that's, you know, that's the frustrating thing about the Republicans, but it's also perfectly natural. I mean, they don't want that showdown. They don't want that fight, and so they're going to lose. And that's why I'm not appealing to politics. Uh, People who are good at politics generally have an addiction to being liked, and uh, unless you can learn to enjoy being hated, you really can't do any good in this world. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing I've, I've thought about is, you know, was, wasn't it Rome that had like a, um, a, I don't know, a million or, or more people? And then after the dollar collapse in Rome, um, there's only like 20,000 or so left. Oh, yeah, I think it went from a million five to 17,000. Yeah. Oh, yeah, radical depopulation. Now, 
I don't think that's going to happen here. And I've talked about this. Gosh, I was in Phoenix, I think 2010, one of the Hancock's Freedom Summits, talking about how, I mean, they'll just turn on the dependent classes. Um, Look, (laughs) farmers don't shut down the farm. It's just, Mm. it's too lucrative. And I, I, you know, I don't, everybody in government knows what the problems are. And until now, they have been able to keep the bullshit going. Mm-hmm. Now, when they're unable to keep the bullshit going, they'll just change. Yep. They'll just change. You know, I mean, the, <laughs> the old horse, they'll keep around as long as the kids are paying two bucks for a pony ride. When the kids stop showing up, hey, it's not profitable anymore. It's glue factory time. Yeah. And there was a giant welfare state set up in Germany. And then the eugenicists came along, and suddenly, if you were mentally handicapped, if you were considered to be economically unproductive and so on, well, it's off to a concentration camp for you, right? And this massive pendulum of of excessive sympathy followed by excessive brutality, not that any amount of brutality is not excessive, but it will swing. And, And it is actually out of my concern for the poor that I talk about shrinking the state, because... You can shrink the state like like landing a plane, or you can shrink the state like the plane's engines fall off. <laughs> like it's it's got to come down. And either it's going to be a, a landing or it's going to be a crash. Now, I'd like it to be a landing. I'm not holding my breath, but I'd like it to be a landing, and I'm doing everything within my power to ensure that we can have a landing so that the poor can walk away from the plane when it lands because if it's not if the government simply runs out of money there will be a brutal period of which ferguson of course is a prequel there will be a brutal period there's a reason why governments are trying to grab as much power as humanly possible at the moment Uh, it's because they know that in the not too too distant future we're going to run out of money yeah we're going to run out of money Uh, mathematically that which cannot continue will not continue and what are they going to do they are going to brutally repress, repress the poor. And, I mean, it's going to be rough. And what's going to come out of that is anybody's guess. Again, I hope that what's going to come out of that is an understanding of what went wrong, that force has been tried and found wanting. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, all, all I can do is speak as much truth as entertainingly and engagingly as possible and to challenge people with as many facts of history and reason and arguments and evidence and philosophy as I can. More than that can no man do that I know of. Maybe there's other people who could do more, in which case tell me and I'll go join them. <laughs> but um, we've just got to get as much information out there. It's force that's failed. It's government that's failed. It's violence that's failed, as it always will. Because if we misdiagnose the illness, we will never, ever be cured of our addiction to propagandized power. So, yeah, that's my hope. Anyway, listen, I got to get on to the next yeah, caller. Not a problem. Thank you so much for calling in, and uh, thanks for helping the poor get mobile. All right. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thank you. All right. Up next is Pigmon. Uh, he wrote in and said, I'm a nonviolent. Um, what now? Pigmon is his name. And if I put it again, my apologies. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, can you spell that for me, please? 
<laughs> P-E-I-J-M-A-N. Pyman? And it's it's pronounced Pejman. Oh, I butchered Pejman. it again. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I feel It's shamed. a hard one. It's a, no, don't feel bad. It's a really hard one. I get this. You don't know how many times I get this. So. All right. I'm going to read your question. Uh, the question I'm is... so white. <laughs> Stop. That's true. I am a nonviolence and conflict transformation workshop facilitator. I notice that people are intrigued by the notion of nonviolence, but do not want to seem weak. Empathy is another subject that seems to be more easily embraced by women. Is empathy actually tough? And how can we talk to men or people who don't want to be seen as weak about empathy? Huh. All right, all right, Pijman. Could you perhaps tell me exactly how you've noticed women to be overly prone to empathy? Okay. Um, I think that they are more attuned like to expressing it and and they're they're more uh they're more open to the idea of it you know like i'll talk to um a series of guys and then i'll talk to a series of girls and i feel like the the kind of skepticism that comes back to me is more on the male side and I, so i think it's an easily more no no i look okay i look i understand that women will talk about empathy right right but where's your evidence rather than what people say right where is my evidence okay well i don't know i'm not necessarily saying that there is evidence i'm saying that it's more the concept itself is more easily embraced by them yeah but i mean so what i mean that's just words right I mean, it's like saying the concept of trust is easily embraced by con men. Well, yeah, because they need to violate it and understand it in order to violate it, right? And I'm just – because, you know, I, I don't know if you know much about my history, but you're, you know, talking to a guy who was beaten up regularly by a woman. Most of my friends were violently aggressed against uh, by women. The statistics are that women are the significant – majority of child abusers women initiate 70 to 80 percent of the divorces which scarcely seems like an overly empathetic act and uh you know anytime you talk about shrinking government which is for the benefit of of kids and the future and so on a lot of people screech and a lot of those people are women right so you know help me to understand look i'm i'm totally open to the fact that you know maybe i just had a whole series of bad experiences and data and facts but help me understand where you see this surfeit of, you know, empathy coming from women. Like, so for instance, I mean, you know, talking about the Emma Watson speech that came out a little while back ago, she's like, hey, we need men to step up and stand up for women. And it's like, that's not empathetic. I mean, where's the empathy for for men? Or, or when, you know, in Florida, when they were trying to end palimony and alimony and just saying, look, you, you split and you're done, right? And women went nuts about that. I mean, w w tell me again, and I'm not saying there are no women with empathy. I mean, of course not, right? Of course. I mean, <laughs> love my wife, and right? But it just seems to me kind of like a propagandized cliche that, you know, women are so prone to empathy and, uh, and men aren't. I mean, I get that women talk about it, but, you know, when we are in philosophy, we don't do face value. In fact, face value Wherever there are cliches, we tend to get more suspicious. So can you tell me where the actual evidence is that you have that women are so great at empathy? 
Um, I'm not saying necessarily that women are great at empathy. I, I mean, I, I've listened to your podcast. I'm a long time listener. It's like, it's an absolute honor to be on this show. So I, I totally get the statistics about women, um, being the primary abusers of children. Um, but you're single, right? No, I'm in a relationship. Uh, How long have you been in the relationship? Almost two years. And how old are you roughly? Just tell me mid thirties, mid twenties, mid forties. I am like early thirties, 33. Early thirties. And how many girlfriends have you had? I have had, I don't know, seven. And do you think that your current relationship is heading towards marriage? Um, it's, it's definitely probably one of the most, um, the deepest relationship I've had. So possible. Yeah. So you might marry the girl, right? It's possible. I'm not like, um, we're not thinking about that at all. Why? Why? I mean, do you want to have kids? Yes. So you're in your early 30s, right? Yes. So what are you doing? I mean, I'm, we're thinking, I'm trying to um, have the, the best relationship possible with her. And, and oh, have, so you think not talking about your future or marriage or children is the way to have the best relationship possible? I mean, I've, I think that there's other ways to commit to each other outside of um, officially getting married. Like, that doesn't necessarily um, stand for, like, the, op- the utmost commitment to me. Um, but I am, like, we do constantly talk about um, the future and, and like building a life together. And so it is very serious on that level. Um, and does she want to have kids too? She wants to have kids. Yeah. And how old is she? She is 29. Right. So her fertility is already starting to decline. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I guess that's my question is that, and you know, I don't necessarily mean like a government marriage, right? I mean, marriages long predates governments and will be around long after governments. Marriage arises out of the dependency of human children for about a quarter century or so until their brains mature. So does she, she wants to have kids, you want to have kids. Mm -hmm. So given that time's ticking away and you're not both in your early 20s, I mean, are you um, on the road to family commitments i guess is my question i mean i think so yeah yeah no that's 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 not much of an answer right no i mean mean you think so no i mean yes we are i mean uh she's met my family i'm about to meet her i'm going to be you know visiting her family over the holidays and so are they overseas no they're in uh but they're not in the city that we live in but wait wait why you you've known you've been dating the woman for two years. You've never met her family. I've met her family when they visited here, but I haven't visited them because um, they live like five or six hours away by plane. So this is like okay. this will be the first time that I meet them in their home. Right. Okay. Now, I mean, the reason that I'm asking all this is is probably kind of obscure. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, uh, you know, I obviously come in, it probably comes out of left field for you. And I'll tell you why. I mean, it's not any particular hidden agenda, but I'll tell you why I'm asking you these questions. Is that women, uh, uh, men who are not in a rest of their life relationship with, from, with a woman can rarely be trusted in their opinions about women. 
That's why I'm asking you these questions. Because generally, men will conform their opinions to what women prefer because men who annoyed too many women did not get to pass on their genetic material. And so men have a genetic desire, almost a genetic imperative, given that that's how evolution works, a genetic imperative to tell women what they want to hear. Right. You know, I was, I was in, and I'm not trying to call you a liar or anything like that, and I say this as a guy who was single for many years, but when a man is not married or is not happily married, it's hard for me, I'm not saying this is some empirically proven reality, but there's very strong biological arguments for it. When a man is, has not found the love of his life who he's committed to for the rest of his days, it's very hard for me to take his opinions about women seriously. doesn't mean you're wrong. I'm just telling you my experience. Because men are genetically programmed to tell women what they want to hear, which is why women have so much power in the political sphere, because it's generally male politicians who are wooing females with a very well-honed male desire to please women at whatever cost it takes because of eggs, right? Eggs, eggs, scrambled, sunny side up, I don't care, give me some eggs, and eggs, glorious eggs. And uh, anyone who annoyed women too much, it seemed like a freak. Right. Seems like a freak because it's like, how could that genetically have survived? Because annoyed women don't give eggs to men who annoy them. And so there's a natural, you know, the, the eggs are the current and the sperm are the salmon and they swim with the current. Because if you don't swim with the current, you get swept away. And so that's why I was asking because you, you basically were praising women at the expense of men. Oh, women are so into empathy and more so than men and so on, right? And well, that is something that is something that a man who has yet to commit to the love of his life says because he's used to praising and pleasing and knee scraping and bowing and scraping before women because of the eggs. Uh, so I'm just telling okay. you that. I'm not telling you you're yeah. wrong. I'm just telling you sort of what I think. Okay, so here's my answer to that. Like I totally agree with you on the on that those points. Not that I don't. I'm. I don't feel that I am doing that kind of thing. I mean, I as a nonviolence trainer and someone that like really has to take a stand on things. Like, I believe in speaking my truth and like and really uh, being authentic, no matter what the you know how it's going to be taken okay, from so, the other but, side. But, so, so I appreciate so. that. That's that's a lovely little piece of propaganda. I mean, you're just telling me stuff, right? I'm asking you for evidence, and you're just telling me stuff, right? Okay. Well, I don't want you, the commercial. I want to test wanna, the product. Okay. Okay. So, so, so tell me how. What, what is so? You basically said, "Well, I'm a nonviolence communicator, and I find women are more empathetic." So, my question is, what is your evidence that women are less violent than men? Okay, so I think that there's a misunderstanding in what I what my question was because I'm not saying that women are necessarily more empathetic; they're just more drawn to, towards empathy to begin with. So, let me give you the evidence for that um, as far as what I've seen in my personal world. So I'm um, involved in starting a business that's related to empathy. And I did a trial version of it. And I found that the most um, that the people that I was attracting ended up being um, older women, like women over 40. Like the idea of empathy for women over 40 seems like it's like a no brainer. Like they're just still sign up to be a part of this business like really fast. Um, but 
and but other demographics that I've reached out to, um, they're not. They need a little bit more of understanding of what, like how it would help them or why why it's useful. I'm sorry. For them. Who? who um, sorry. Who? Do who is it who has trouble understanding the value of empathy? Um. Th- well, I've I've had... no. I'm not trying to catch you. I'm just. Right. I'm sorry. I just missed it. If you said it, uh-huh. you just repeat. If you can just repeat what you said. You said women over forty are very big on empathy, or at least receptive to it. But who was it? Who's not? Pretty pretty much any other demographic is not as receptive to it as that demographic. Right. Okay. So. Men are generally raised by women under 40, right? Right. Right. So if men are raised by women and men don't have empathy, generally it's because the women have not given them empathy, right? I mean, if if a, sure. if a man is raised in Japan and doesn't speak English, I would assume his mother didn't speak English to him, right? Sure, sure. So this idea that there's one gender that's really good on empathy and one gender that's not when the empathetic gender raises the other gender it seems to me kind of odd it's like saying well in this family the men all speak Japanese and know English and the women all speak English and know Japanese right I mean a child a child who is treated empathetically will surely know some of the value of empathy absolutely I totally I totally agree with that it just seems that um, in reaching out to people with with what I was putting out there, that was the initial demographic that was coming out at me, and I think that what I'm okay. And sorry, with, sorry, to interrupt. Sorry, to interrupt. Sure, sure. So, uh, so the women have you then taught these classes with these women now? Um, I've taught. I haven't taught specific um, empathy classes. I've I've taught like um, nonviolence workshops and conflict transformation workshops, and that's to any. One. And that, in, that, in those workshops, the um, there's like equally as many men as, as there are women. Um, and would you say that either gender is better or worse at understanding the concepts? No, 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 no. And that's what I want to say about Okay, so hang question. on. So wait. So let me just get to where – because you started with a pretty broad statement about women and empathy. And it's my understanding that your evidence is that you've put some ads out about empathy workshops and you seem to get more interest from women over 40. Is that right? Yes. Yes. But you haven't actually taught any of these workshops and found out if these women – maybe they're contacting you because they need empathy. Look, I mean if, if I'm going to teach a course on how to use a spreadsheet and more women over 40 apply to, to learn that course, wouldn't I assume that women over 40 know the least about spreadsheets? Yeah, I think, I think that they need empathy and that – but they're also like open to the idea of it. You know, I, I think that we – No, all no, need- you're not understanding what I'm saying. Uh-huh. So if I say, listen, anyone can take this course about Excel or spreadsheets or whatever, right? And then women over 40 are the ones who mostly sign up for it or show an interest in it, then I would assume that there's a deficiency of knowledge about spreadsheets, particularly to women over 40, and then saying, well, they're open to learning about spreadsheets. Well, of course they are. But by applying to that course, one thing, I mean, it could be that there's a higher demand, but, but one thing you'd know for sure is that Women over 40 seem to have the least knowledge about spreadsheets, which is why they're signing up for them. Maybe. Or so, I'm not sure, I'm, so I'm not sure how the response to your ads for empathy workshops by women over 40 gives you the indication that women are better with empathy. It could mean that women over 40 
have finally figured out that they need more more empathy, right? That they That's, need to learn more about empathy. Right. I in think, other words, that they're deficient in empathy. I think that they're more aware that they need empathy in their lives than other demographics. Um, but that no, 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 no. That's not. That doesn't logically follow. That's like me saying, well, everybody needs to learn spreadsheets, but women over 40 are the only ones aware of the knowledge that they need to learn spreadsheets. Maybe the men already know how to learn how to do spreadsheets. Right? Maybe, maybe the men aren't interested in signing out for your courses because they're pretty empathetic to begin with. I'm just saying no, – I'm not saying it's proven. True. I'm just no, saying it's a possibility. I don't think that's true. I mean I think that no, empathy no, – No, you're not listening. Sorry to get annoyed, but I'm annoyed. <laughs> okay. I didn't say it was true. I said it's a possibility. It's a possibility. It's sure. Okay. That's all I'm be. asking. Right. It could be. But I okay, don't – Okay. So then don't say it's because women are greater with empathy. Say it's a possibility. Right. All I'm saying is that in my experience through, through reaching out and putting out my service, that the initial demographic that came out was, was, uh, was women over 40, and they seemed – to have recognized the need for it. So maybe they need it more than others. Maybe they just recognize that they need it more than others. I can't tell you that. Right. But, but okay, so then we don't, we don't know anything other than a particular demographic is showing a particular need for empathy. Right, right. Okay, so that doesn't at all say that women are better at or more open to or anything like that in terms of empathy. I just want to be clear about that because if you start putting those ideas out there, which are incredibly cliched and contradicted by the evidence, women initiate more than half of domestic violence incidents. Women rape men at an equivalent level and degree to which men rape women. Women abuse children more than men. So if you're putting out stuff based upon extremely flimsy evidence about how women are so empathetic, I think you are not helping the world and its problems with violence. And I'm not saying that only women are violent, of course not, but what I am saying is that women's capacity for aggression is swept under the rug, is hidden, and is cloaked, and is to some degree cloaked, my friend, by people like you, who are talking about how women are just sensitive and empathy and this and that and the other, right? No, 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 no. We need to give women the respect of saying, hey, the facts are that you guys are pretty violent, and you're violent in the worst possible way, the most, which is against children, because there's no greater power disparity in any human relationship than that between parent and child. And so if we, you know, I just, I push back hard against people who gloss over women's capacity for violence and abuse, because until that's processed in the world, we're not going to get any kind of real handle on the cycle of violence. We've now been focusing on men's role in the cycle of violence for approximately 20,000 years. Because men hitting women, yes, been illegal for many, many, many years. Um, uh, Hundreds and hundreds of years. Men's capacity for war has been examined. Men's capacity for aggression, sociopathy, coldness, cruelty, all has been examined up the yin-yang. And we have still yet to break the cycle of violence. And I believe, and I have more than a belief in this, in that I've gone significant numbers of presentations on this and interviews about this with subject matter experts and academics and researchers and PhDs and so on, that is, it is our inability to recognize women's capacity for immorality. That is the fundamental reason why we can't seem to break this cycle of violence that has continued as long as our species has. And so when I hear you putting out things like, well, you know, women are empathy and that, I'm going to ask you tough questions because that's not the information that I've had, and it's not the arguments I've before. It doesn't mean I'm right and you're wrong, 
but it means if you're going to put something that contradicts a massive amount of empirical evidence, you better have stronger arguments than, well, women over 40 seem to show some more interest in my proposals for empathy workshops. So sorry to be harsh, but I just really wanted to make my, at least my perspective clear on that. Yeah, no, and I, um, I don't know, maybe it was something in the way I worded it, but I totally, I totally understand what you're, what you're talking about there. Um, if you want, and for those who want, and I'll shut up about this now, but, uh, it's called the truth about violence. It's a presentation that I did some months ago. That's, uh, doing fairly well and and i think is a very very important one but anyway let's let's move on from that and i, I appreciate you Benjamin. i really appreciate you letting me have my rant about that um but let's move on to uh, to the substance of your question if that's all right yeah 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 so basically i just want to know what how i mean i mean when i'm talking to people about empathy it seems like um and nonviolence, they're they're open to it to a certain degree but they don't want to seem weak you know, like people don't want to adopt empathy if it makes them seem weak. And um, so I'm wondering, like, how do I present it to, to them and how do I um, attract people into this conversation even um, about empathy, which I feel is so is such an important um, part of our lives and an important need for anyone, male or female. Um, but empathy – sorry, but I think you have to be honest in that empathy is a significant weakness around non-empathetic people. I mean if you have empathy – let's take an extreme example. If you have a really cruel and mean and sociopathic person in your life and you show great empathy towards that person, that person will exploit you. They will play upon your sympathies. They will play upon your empathy. They will play upon your kindness. They will play upon your – feeling for their situation, they will milk every last drop of human kindness out of you to exploit them. It's like being around drug addicts, right? Drug addicts, if you have a sympathy for a drug addict to the point where you're like enabling them or, or, or alcoholics or whatever, they'll, they'll play you and they'll manipulate you and they'll lie to you. And so empathy is a huge weakness around certain kinds of people. And if you want empathy to be a strength rather than a weakness, then you have to have people around you who are also empathetic. But wandering out into the world, spraying off empathy, is marking yourself with all of the airstrike laser paint that you can imagine to call in everyone who can come and exploit you, saying, hey, I'm sensitive. You can push my buttons. And so I think that you have to really be, uh, in my opinion, right? I mean, be honest and say, uh, empathy is a wonderful, wonderful binding glue of human intimacy if you are around the right people. If you are around kind and empathetic people, then you want to have empathy, but you need to be able to seal that shit up pretty damn quickly when you are around predatory, selfish, taking people. Empathy is something that is for the love only. It's for lovers and for uh, children and for extended family. And empathy is for people who have empathy. Empathy must be hidden away and kept very safe from people who are exploitive. Right. So you're saying it leaves you vulnerable, basically. Um, and so... But what I'm what I'm wondering is that is that kind of like 
in that kind of um, you know saving empathy only for your most intimate moments is that kind of reinforcing a kind of um, separation within society and our yeah, relations. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I hope the hell so. I really do. And that separation is essential for a society to progress. Look, we empathetic people, we need to fucking put up our shields and gather together. And this is well known. Look, if, if I'm no psychologist or addictions counselor, but my understanding is that if you want to stop doing heroin, who do you not need to be around? Heroin addicts. Yeah, heroin addicts, heroin dealers, the whole scene. You have to turn on your heel and GTFO, right? Right. Not look back. Do not, you know, if you leave your wallet there, get a new wallet. If you leave your prosthetic leg there, hop out. But you need to not be with dysfunctional people if you are recovering from said dysfunction. Now, if you are an empathetic person who has cruel people around him or her, then clearly you are in recovery. Because if, like, my daughter is growing up and she's got empathetic people around her and all that, she doesn't know cruel people. So she's not going to be in recovery. But for most of us, we grew up with cruel teachers or cruel priests or cruel parents maybe or cruel extended, some combination usually of some thing. And so if you have managed to make it to adulthood with your secret heart intact, fantastic. But you, you are then in recovery from exposure to cruelty. And so until I hear lots of therapists say that the best thing to cure alcoholism is to spend lots of time with alcoholics in bars with triggers, the best way to cure sex addiction is at strip clubs, and the best way to cure a gambling addiction is at the racetrack in Vegas – until I hear that kind of advice spraying around, then I will continue to say to people that if you wish to grow your empathy, as I've always talked about in real-time relationships, The Logic of Love, it's a free book at freedomainradio.com slash free. I stand by it even more now than the years ago when I wrote it. Be honest, be open, be vulnerable with people in your life. And if they hurt you and exploit you because of your vulnerability, let it hurt and let it inform your decisions. But this idea that empathy is this like, uh, you know, we are, have a bottle of water in a desert full of thirsty people called empathy and we can hand it around to everyone and everyone will drink and everybody will be happier thereby, I think is a complete myth. In many, many cultures, in many, many situations, in many, many environments, empathy is a surefire way to get yourself exploited. Empathy in a good portion of society is like running through a poor, bad neighborhood with a clear plastic bag full of $100 bills. I mean, you may make it through alive, but it'd only be by luck. Yeah, you know, something that's coming up for me when you're talking about this is um – you know, is is first being clear and able to be authentic with yourself. It seems like, you know, you're talking about some of the abuse that you've suffered as as a as a child or early in your life and you had to talk about that within a safe confine and really be able to have that empathy for yourself and, and get it from from others within your environment. And now you're able to, to um put yourself out there and talking about this to anyone, right? So so in that sense you've You've kind of um, 
you've grown your ability to be authentic by having those empathic experiences. Yeah, I'm not sure what that means. Sorry, I'm. Well, I guess what, what I'm what I'm saying is like empathy helps you become more authentic because you're 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 hearing you're expressing yourself as you are, right? You're you're being totally vulnerable, and that's what puts you in a in a you know when you're in that vulnerable position, other someone else can take advantage of you, right? That's the danger that you were talking about. Um, but you first need to be able to express that within yourself to be authentic with yourself, and then you can have. Um, you know, then you can be your authentic self with others and not feel like you will get exploited because it's only like what you are afraid of within yourself that is holding you back from presenting yourself to the world. Yeah. I mean, I guess my, I agree. And I, when I say I agree, I mean, that's just nothing more than my personal expression of opinion, but we are inauthentic because authenticity harms us i mean a baby is completely authentic authentic right they cry when they're upset they laugh when they're happy and right we are born authentic and honest and open and vulnerable i mean every time a baby cries they're being vulnerable so we are um when we are children if we are in these tragic familial environments then we very quickly learn that authenticity brings punishment that because when we are authentic, we are often inconvenient to selfish people. We have needs that contradict their needs or preferences in the moment. And most people who are selfish, when they are faced with someone being inconvenient, they will basically just punish that person until the inconvenient desires the other person manifests vanish. I mean, the opposite to authenticity is fear, is punishment. We are punished for being honest. And so then, you know, you can say we become inauthentic and so on. Well, sure, absolutely. But that's like saying that somebody running from a lion is out for their morning constitutional. It's like, well, I guess it's healthy for them to run because it's good for their heart, but they're running because a lion is chasing them, not because they are into the exercise itself. And... um so when I view someone who is inauthentic, and I've seen those people, of course, as we all have many times, to me, that's just a form of stress disorder from being punished as uh, as a child. And it, it, it also occurs as adults, there's a lot of exploitation in the business world. There is a lot of exploitation in the business world, in particular around stocks and going public and finances and so on. And so I, yeah, I agree with you that um, you, you need to know the truth about yourself before you can express the truth to others. But I think it's also important, you know, every mythology that has lasted has what's called the myth of the golden age or the myth of the absent fairy tale you know like the garden of eden or the noble savage or mankind in a state of nature and so on and there's this idea in most mythologies that at the beginning everything was better and then you know eve ate of the apple and convinced adam to do so and 
human beings first figured out that they could exploit others and then the egalitarian hunter-savage community sorry hunter-gatherer community was was disrupted and destroyed and and so on we went from egalitarian villagers to human farms that stretch across a whole continent and there's this idea that back in the beginning was a golden age of oneness with nature and god and why is this myth which historically is the opposite of true. There was no wonderful golden age of egalitarian togetherness back at the dawn of the species. The dawn of the species was we stopped eating each other. You know, that was a huge step forward. You know, less cannibalism was a huge uh, step uh, forward. Um, uh, leaving Africa and, uh, you know, was another step forward in many ways in that the sort of ice people had more challenging environments that had various changes. Uh, in in biology and social structure, uh, and th- there were these huge leaps forward. But we started off in this, you know, horrible eating each other and raping each other. I mean, this is horrible situation. I mean, there was a, uh, a special I saw on a nature show once where four killer whales – were attempting to eat a baby humpback whale. And the mother was trying to protect it, and they kept biting it, and it was horrible. The mother tried bringing the humpback, baby humpback whale up to the surface of the water, and then the killer whales would come in and chew more of its sides off. And, oh, God, it was just uh, agonizing to watch. This went on for hours and hours and hours. And finally, the mother had to give up and leave the baby to be devoured by the killer whales. And as it turns out... The killer whales only ate part of its tongue, part of the baby's tongue. That's all they ate. They weren't even that hungry. They just wanted to murder and eat a baby. And these are mammals. These aren't even sharks. And that's nature. You know, the mother desperately trying to protect its young from the killer whales who only want to eat its tongue. And then the rest of it slid into the depths to be gnawed upon by all of the lower dwelling crustaceans and fish. And that's where we came from. There's no golden age. But personally, I think for us as individuals, there is a golden age. And we're all born honest and must be traumatized into falsehoods. We're all all born with the lusty cries of laughter and pain. That's who we are as children. We are honest and clear in our communications. We do not lie, we do not manipulate, we do not dissemble, we do not defraud. We are honest. And then, so many times, the straight channels are waterfalls of direct communication and experience and honesty must be carved into these endlessly complicated channels like the lower intestine of some magic mad beast because direct communication is punished as inconvenient to the selfish needs of those who have power over us. And the dishonesty that we are contorted into, you know, we are just the natural air moving around the planet of honesty. And then we are trapped in balloons. And then the clowns of culture twist us into these constipated balloon animals and distort us. And so it is a great challenge to get back to the simple honesty of infancy. But we really have to be hurt to move or be ejected 
violently ejected usually from that natural state. We have to be told, you are immoral, you are evil for having been born, Jesus died for you, you are bad, you are selfish, you are mean, go sit on those stairs, you didn't share, you weren't nice, you weren't diplomatic, you didn't kiss the peppermint wart-smelling great aunt whose hair brushes against your eyeball, you were mean, you were rude, you were nasty, you were didn't listen, you didn't respect me, you didn't do what I said, I have to tell you once, I have to tell you a hundred times. And we are bullied and brutalized into having to lie for a living. Because if you displease your parents, biologically, you didn't survive. Because they could always make more, and if you were too inconvenient, you were on an iceberg, or you were thrown to the sharks, or you were handed over to the priest for some other Aztec god-awful human sacrifice ritual. And so the terrifying power and authority that adults have over children is the power that corrupts. You know, as Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Well, there's no greater power than a parent over a child. It's that. The fact that we never think of that in terms of parents, but we only think of it in terms of politics, is what we fundamentally misunderstand about where power comes from and what it really is, which is power over children. And so when I see inauthentic people, I see a history of them having a golden age, which may have lasted only hours or days as an infant, where honesty was as natural as breathing. Honesty was as natural as digestion. And I see the amount of force and violence and pressure and rejection and aggression that drove the honesty out of them like the demons driven out of the pigs or driven out of the uh, demon haunted by Christ and thrown into the pigs who ran off a cliff. That those around those babies were such demons that they viewed honesty as a devil that needed violent exorcism. And that sadly remains the nature of a lot of the world, less so in the West, more so, I think, in other cultures. And so empathy, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful gift, which we must be very careful who we bestow it on, because empathy is the surrender of power. I mean, the people in my life who I love have the power to hurt me irrevocably. I have the power to hurt them irrevocably. It is the surrender of power. And most people, when you give them power, will not use it wisely to say, to say it as nicely as humanly possible. So I teach as best I can the wonderful power of empathy. But empathy without discrimination, empathy without strength, empathy without guardedness. In other words, are you worthy of my empathy? Not in like I do a video on World War One and I cry and I feel very passionate about that, but I don't have relationships with people like that. And there, of course, are the douchebags who were like, oh man, you shouldn't cry, it's so stupid. You, you know, okay, well, fine. <laughs> you can have that life, I'll have mine. But to me, empathy without discrimination is 
a form of self-abuse. It is a form of inviting predators into your life with a big jar full of marinade on your balls and then hoping things go well. Does that does that help at all? I'm not saying does that is that true or anything. I just mean does it sort of help with my perspective? Um, it does, and um, I also want to push back on a little bit on what you said in terms of I've found that conflicts are just a part of life and and we're going to have conflicts with people no matter what and i agree and if we if we can empathize with them it can actually you know if we just say okay that person is not worthy of my empathy i'm in a conflict with them but they're not worthy of my empathy that conflict may not get resolved you know may not may not be come out to a win win may not be de-escalated, may escalate into way worse. But I've, I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience. In the, in, Can you in give the, me an example? Because theories, sure. you know, theoreticals are always tough to Okay, so here, sure, here's an example. I, I used to be a bouncer or door guy um, for bars. And um, so I would have to deal with people that come in, they're a little bit too drunk, um, they are being disruptive to people they're interrupting people's conversations or whatever they're being aggressive i have to come in and and basically intervene so before i was dealing you know and, and studying empathy and nonviolence, i had a more typical approach which was like that guy's a troublemaker we got to get him out of here that's it um and sure that like stopped some of the conflicts to a certain degree and, and to another degree, it ended up with me having these ongoing conflicts with that person. Um, well, sorry, what do you mean by ongoing? You well, mean they'd come back night after yeah, night? Yeah, because um, a lot of those, a lot of the people that go to bars, you know, specific bars, are, are regulars. So you want to make sure that you're um, you can you can deal with everything in a diplomatic manner. Um, so, anyways, I'll give you my um, my example here. There was there was one night a regular came in and he was ext- he looked extremely disturbed after um, after a while and he was interrupting people and, and people were like complaining to me and so I went up to him and I would have normally just thrown him out or been like look you got to just go home and just like kind of ended it there but in this situation I was like okay let me just take a second here and see what is it that you're that this person could be possibly going through that they're needing to act out like this. So I took that moment and I just and I didn't even say anything, but it was just me holding that space, and it ended up that um, that he he opened up. To, he was vulnerable to me, and and he had experienced some trauma um, recently, and and basically in sharing that with me, he de-escalated himself, and then he was and then basically he just kind of walked away, and 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 the end result of that. Um, as far as my assessment was that we became more connected, um, and then and then he was able to achieve some some kind of peace within himself, and then I, um, and then also he wasn't bothering people anymore at the bar. Right, right, okay, and I, I I'm certainly willing to accept that as a as an outcome. Right. You, so yeah. Go ahead. So basically, the point of this is that, like, and, and this is something that I've dealt with, even when and when people are like completely aggressive against me, you know, like they come at me completely violent, and I can say, well, ho, in this case, I just have to guard myself and defend myself, and like, um, 
and 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 whatever like kick this person away and beat them down so that they don't get to me right like that's a typical response and that's fine if that's all you know but if you if you can respond empathically even in a moment when someone is aggressing against you it's a kind it's it like opens up a, a humanity within within them and i've seen it happen to to me where people are yelling me yelling at me and then i i instead of reacting against that i'm like well, what is it that you're really angry about? Let me let me really understand that, and let me really understand what are the feelings and needs, and why is it that you're so passionate about this subject? And it's like just turning that around and and turning those habits around, and not reacting the way you know we're we're taught to react when someone is aggressing is amazing. The kind of uh, human connection that comes out of that. So I think that when you're talking about saving empathy only for your your trusted friends, I I don't know, I don't. I don't really, um, I haven't, I've had amazing experience of having empathy with people who were enemies of mine. Okay. I think that's, I mean, I certainly appreciate the story. Um, but I'm not sure what that has to, maybe we're using the word empathy in, in two different ways. Okay. Um, because it seems to be that when you ask someone what's really bothering you, you're not being vulnerable, are you? Well, um, you well. I'm, so here's how I uh, how I um, am taking empathy to mean. Basically, it's the willingness to um, look at things from another person's perspective and see see the world from their shoes, basically, and and understand their feelings and needs, and with a genuine kind of concern to. Um, help them with their with those needs, and and then um, self empathy is basically being completely honest and vulnerable with yourself. Um, so I think that when you're when you're vulnerable, um, you're not necessarily being empathic. You're just expressing yourself, um, and whether or not they're being they're going to be empathic towards you is just it depends on the person. Does that make sense? Mm, somewhat. I mean, you're still not being vulnerable, right? If if you're being empathic to the other person, like say, okay, so they aggress against you, and then you're like, well, well actually, what is it that you're angry about? What are your feelings and your needs? And you're listening to them, and you're trying to understand them, then you are being empathic towards them. That's not what I'm saying. And you're not you're not necessarily being vulnerable, no. Okay, and so yeah. I look. I understand that. Yeah, get get to the root of what people's problems are. I think that's right. that's fine. Right, right. That makes sense to me. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about, though, because you can't be exploited in that situation, right? Right, right. So the whole thing I gave a big long speech was about being exploited by people, and then you give me an example where you still have the authority as the bouncer to kick the person out, to call the cops. You still have authority, but you're asking the person what the issue is, but that person cannot possibly exploit you because you hold all the power in that situation. And, and, you know, maybe you're using that power very wisely. It sounds like a very nice thing that you did, but it's not even remotely related to what I'm talking about because you don't have a relationship with that person. You are not being vulnerable to that person, and you retain all of the power in that interaction with that person. And so you have a better way of approaching it than picking the guy up and throwing him out on his ass. Fine. Okay. I think that's, you know, good, good for you. I think that's great. That's a very efficient form of customer management, especially if the person can come back. But I was talking about personal relationships. I was talking about sort of friends, family, lovers, and so on, where you have ongoing 
communications with them and where vulnerability can be used for for exploitation, right? Like a typical example would be something like uh, you tell your parents um, that you love this toy the most. You know, let's say it's your Slinky. You know, you tell your Slinky, the Slinky is my favorite, favorite toy. Well, you've just given the parents power. Because if the parents want to punish you, what are they going to do? They just take away toy. Right. And so your honesty has now been used against you. You are punished because now they know what your favorite thing is. And that's what they want to take away. If you say, I'm really looking forward to going to the school dance on Friday, and they're upset with you, what are they going to say? No school dance on Friday. That's what I'm talking about in terms of vulnerability and exploitation, in that your desires are used to punish you. People don't want to go to jail. So what does the government do? threatens them with jail. It knows they don't want to go to jail. It makes jail as unpleasant as possible without breaking too many international (laughs) violations, uh, too many international laws. And and, and, And so vulnerability gives people power and so, not everyone but some people will use that power to to hurt you like in a divorce right the, the 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 man loves the beach house because it was given to him by his grandfather it's been in the family for generations a particularly vindictive kind of woman might expressly want that beach house because she knows how much it's going to hurt this could happen either gender it just happened to be the way i picked it but um so that's what I'm talking about, not you're a bouncer who can call the cops and you're de-escalating by asking someone what the problem is rather than kicking him out because he's going to come back. I think that's fine, but that's not what I'm talking about. But do you think that in not being authentic and not being vulnerable as just as a human, isn't that kind of uh, – there's some kind of pain in having to withhold yourself? when you're just out there in the world expressing yourself as a human and you have to hold back parts of yourself? I mean, I don't, I'm, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's, it's painful to me that I, I can't leave my wallet in a park bench and come back a week later and it's still there, but it's a necessary caution in a world where not everyone is honest, right? I mean, does it bother me that I have to lock my car? I guess, but, you know, what's my option? Does it bother me that I need a passcode on my cell phone? Does it bother me that um, I need to lock my front door? I mean, I don't. I mean, it's just it's the way it's the way things are, um, and it's easier, right? Than that I could leave my front door open if I wanted, and I could leave I don't know fifty bucks uh, on a rock in front of my house. Um, but that's not the way the world is. I mean, I'd like it if that's the way the world works, and I certainly want people to to do to work towards a world like that, primarily through being very empathetic and not punishing children and being very gentle and positive and peaceful with children, for sure. But the idea that there are people out there who are uh, dangerous, who are exploitive, who are manipulative, well, um, I don't doubt that. Uh, the, the statistics seem to be fairly clear. My personal experience and the experience of now hundreds and hundreds of people I've talked to on this show seem to be very clear that there are people out there who are uh, who are dangerous. And uh, I would love a world where we could leave our front doors unlocked. There are places in the world where that has been the case before. And um, 
I think that would be wonderful. I think we need to work towards that kind of world. We never need to – we never want to let go of the possibility of that kind of world. And I'm absolutely positive we can achieve that kind of world. But that's not the kind of world we have right now. I don't believe that empathy is contagious except through parent to child, right? In other words, nobody that I know of has been able to cure sociopathy or psychopathy in the population. There's no – and people have tried so many different things to try and cure a fundamental lack of empathy on the part of other human beings. I mean they've tried ice therapy. They've tried um, uh, drug therapies. They've tried LSD. They've tried extensive talk therapy. They've, Because, I mean, it's the holy grail, I guess, of psychiatry or psychology to be able to grow the mirror neurons that were not grown in early childhood. But it seems to be about as effective, you know, if some kid was grown up, malnourished and end up six inches shorter than they would have other, there's no point giving them lots of food later. It doesn't just makes them fatter. It doesn't make them taller because that window uh, of development is gone. It's past. It can't be fixed after the fact. So until, and look, I'm open to it. Maybe someone can figure it out. I doubt it. But, you know, what the hell do I know? I'm just some amateur idiot on the internet. So until somebody can show to me like brain scan proof that they have taken an unempathetic brain and physically transformed it into an empathetic brain using – and they, they, they got to show me the fMRIs. They got to show me the psych test. They got to show me the long-term changes in behavior. They have to – like I really, really want to see this cure for selfishness. And, and, and when people can show that to me, then I will say, great. Now we can speed up the process, and it no longer has to be intergenerational. But as uh, you know, n- people have been trying for thousands of years to cure sociopathy in one form or another. I mean, even the Inuit have a name for it. But the guy who steals all your food and tries to seduce all your women—they're only cure. The Inuit uh, in the north, their only cure was to put this guy in an iceberg and push it away from, from the shore. I couldn't. They couldn't figure out how to make this kind of person better. But I know, sorry, hang on, I know for sure, as of now, or as sure as sure can be, as of now, my capacity for empathy cannot make anybody else who's selfish empathetic, any more than me knowing Japanese can make someone else speak Japanese somehow through, without them studying it for years. And even studying it for years doesn't seem to help fix this problem, and sociopaths are... One in 20, one in 16, depending on how you count it. There's a lot of people out there. And a lot of other people will conform to the sociopath because the sociopath is the more dangerous person. And most people, when they're pretending to be ethical, they're just conforming to the most dangerous person in the room. And what that means is that when you are in the orbit of someone like this, most of the people who you think are close to you are going to end up conforming to that person, to the most dangerous person around and betraying you. That's, I think, a fairly well-known phenomenon. You know about the Milgram experiments um, where people, um, you know, significant majorities of people will electrocute another person to death if someone in power tells them to, right? This is is the level of, of where we are. This has been reproduced all over the world. It's even more common among women than men, which is where your argument for empathy, like more women will electrocutes a stranger than men will. Men will at least hesitate, one out of four if I remember rightly, but most women will do it because, I don't know, for a variety of reasons. 
But um, so I'm I'm very happy. You know, once they can figure out how to cure this kind of selfishness, and I'm just talking about the more extreme of it, like the one in sixteen or one in twenty. Which is not to say that everyone else is really empathetic. I think empathy is a very scarce resource in the world these days. I mean, I could literally, you know, before I got married. I could count on the fingers of one hand the few genuinely empathetic people I'd met in my entire life out of meeting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. So I'm not saying don't be nice. I'm not saying don't be curious. I mean, I ask strangers about their thoughts and histories every time I have a show, every time we talk about these these kinds of issues. I'm super curious and super interested in what people have to say about their histories and so on. But I don't imagine that I have some sort of magical power to cure a lack of empathy in others. Until science tells me otherwise, um, I have to go with the facts. But sorry, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to share a story that was um, related to, you know, you're talking about curing selfishness or, um, you know, someone in an extreme sociopathic state of how they can make a shift. And um, there's a famous, um, well, there's a, there's a, Lifelong peace activist named David Hartsoe is a um, definitely a hero of mine. He just came out with a book, Waging Peace. But um, he was involved in the lunch counter sit-ins um, uh, back in the uh, civil uh, American civil rights movement. Um, and he was basically he was in the lunch counter. He was sitting in. He was one of the activists, and in came in basically the kind of um, they weren't the police, but they were. Um, they were against um, this kind of mixing of the, the races within the, the cafeteria, and they were bullies, basically. They were like neighborhood bullies, and they were backed up by the police, although it wasn't the police. And they came in, they had weapons, and they had uh, knives, and then this one particular aggressive, you could say sociopathic person, came up to David, and he was sitting there locking arms with someone else. And basically, the man put a knife in his face, and he said, you know, get out of here right now or I'm going to, you know, kill you, essentially. And David Hartso's response, he'd been trained in nonviolence and, it, and then, you know, he basically, he, his response was, he said, brother, you do what you have to do and I'm going to sit here and love you. And basically what happened was that man basically started immediately um, crying and dropped his knife and basically ran out of the room. Um, so it's a kind of extreme example, but I think it's one, you know, in an extreme situations, we, we, you know, it's an example of an extreme vulnerability in the face of an extreme threat that actually had an extremely transformative effect. And I think that there's, there's something, there's some core humanity within us um, that we all have. And if we, and if we say, Oh, this person wasn't, um, capable of empathy, then that, that moment wouldn't have happened. That transformation wouldn't have happened. Okay. So you, this is not how philosophy works. I mean, I'm going to be authentic and honest with you that this is not how philosophy works. I gave a lot of physical evidence, empirical evidence, and so on. And what did you respond with? That's a real story that happened. What did – no, a story. 
Right. Now, I don't know if it's a real story. Were there witnesses? Was it recorded? I don't know. I gave you a lot of facts and evidence, and you gave me an unverified anecdote. This is not how philosophy works, my friend. This is not how the pursuit of truth works. Like if, I'll tell you, when I, when I got sick with cancer, I had all these people who emailed me and said, well, I know a guy who did this and he got better. And I, like, it's all just anecdotes. Don't give me anecdotes. Give me science. Give me verification. Give me truth. The idea that you can love someone who has a knife to your throat is deranged. Why? The idea that somebody who's capable of putting a knife to your throat is going to run off crying because you tell them that you love them, until I see it on videotape, I don't believe. And look, you can tell me, well, that's cynical and so on. No, that's skeptical. Skeptical is good. Skeptical is healthy. You cannot overturn years and decades of neurological science. You've got to read this, the, the, the Science of Evil by someone, Baron Cohen, the comedian's cousin or whatever. He talks about empathy is a system of 10 to 12 to 13 complex areas within the brain all interacting with each other. Now, it cannot be that... Empathy, which is a very complex and sophisticated series of brain activities, all connected to each other, all needing to be present and working properly in order for empathy to occur. The physical process of developing mirror neurons, which allow you to experience what other people experience in a real way. This idea that you turn to someone who's got a knife to your throat and you say, you do what you have to do, I'm going to sit here and love you, that that somehow spontaneously creates mirror neurons within the other person's mind, that it spontaneously creates these 10 to 13 complex interacted, inter, interrelated systems within the brain that are necessary for empathy. The idea that a little phrase can somehow grow empathy in another human brain you, you are literally telling me a story that a man's words can regrow an arm that is missing. I don't think it's the, just the book his is words, called, Sorry, the book, the book is called The Science of Evil on Empathy and the Origins of Cruelty by Simon Baron Cohen. Uh, it's, you, know, you need to read this. You need to know what the facts are about empathy. You need to not have anecdotes. You need to have facts in your theories. Because so far, I've given you a lot of facts, and you have given me two anecdotes about being a bouncer and some unverified story from a peace activist. I'm sorry, can you just remind me what his name was again? Uh, yeah, his name is David Hartso, and the book yeah, is can called... Can you spell that for me? Sure. It's H-A-R-T-S-O-U-G-H, and the book is called Waging Peace, Global Adventures of a Lifelong Activist. So he was a son of a minister, right? Right, yeah. Okay, I'm just having a look up. I'm going to assume if he was into the civil rights movement, he was from the left, which is neither here nor there. It's just a... Uh, I mean, uh, on the back of the book, you have a quote by Daniel Ellsberg giving him a testimonial. But it's just, I mean, so the wait, book so is, is, is his, wait, so is his argument that women who are about to be raped should say that they love their rapists? 
because that is showing empathy and that will cause the rapist to drop their knives and run away? Is that is that his argument? That we really should blame women who are raped for their lack of empathy towards their rapists, thus propelling their rapists into their violent actions? Um, I, no, I, I mean, he. I don't think he has a, a statement on, on that particular situation. I think... What, Wait, is that the different? Reason, Wait, is, is that different from the guy who's got a knife to his throat? I think, I think the point here is that... No, no, don't give me no. Give me an answer here. I'm asking you a direct question. If he is saying that empathy reduces violence, then victims of violence are in some ways to blame for not empathizing with their attacker. No, no, I don't think so. Well, no, that's the point of the story, wasn't it? No, it's the, the, the point of the story for me is to show that if you choose to take a step, um, if you choose to really stand with your integrity and if you're really going to love and if you're really going to be empathic and, and really put yourself out there and stand for what you believe in, which was what he was doing um, in the lunch counter sit-ins, he was putting his life on the line. And someone was there and, and saying basically, like, I will kill you unless you stop fighting for this right. And he said, no, I will put my life on the line for, for the right to do this. And that vulnerability, that, that deep, deep, like, commitment to justice and that core of humanity within him to still not hold that person as an enemy, even though that person was ready to kill him, was, I think... The, and he the, solved, but he solved the violence and he ended the violence by loving his attacker, Right. Yes, but he was doing it for a cause. He wasn't just... No, 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 that cause doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. Do you not think that the woman has a cause called don't rape me? Well, see, I think, I think, I don't think that the message of this is to say, look, just go there and take whatever violence anyone's going to give you, and that will magically... Um, open them up. I don't. I don't want to say that message at all. I don't because I you don't. Gave think that's me, look, true. you gave me this story, which was that a man has a knife to this guy's throat. He says he loves him, and the man drops the knife and runs away. That is the. That's the only response you gave to me after I gave you all the facts and science. Okay, so you are giving me a story which was the sole example that you provided, along with uh, empathizing with the violent drunk. That was your story about how to deal with violence. Here's, now, you didn't say to me, you didn't say to me, well, sometimes that doesn't work, or most times that doesn't work, or I guess he was lucky, or whatever, right? That was your story. That was your proof. That was what you brought to the table in response to what I was saying. So, I can only assume that that is your perspective, that that is what people should do in the face of violence. Because that's what you were talking about when I talked about human beings' capacity for cruelty and the fact that there are sadists out there who, whose brains light, light up orgasmically when they view intentional human cruelty on a videotape. So that is your argument, that this is what people should do. They no. should love their enemies in the Christ-like fashion, right? I mean, if your enemy asks you to walk a mile, walk two miles. If he asks for your cloak, give him your jacket too. Or if he asks for your coat, give him your shirt as well. That you should love your enemies and that will reduce or eliminate their capacity for violence. That's the story that you gave to me. Now, you didn't give that to me with caveats. 
like, well, you know, I guess he was lucky or, you know, I don't recommend this in every situation, blah, 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 blah. He could have just got stabbed or the guy could have run away and waited for him later and whatever, right? That was your story to me. So that's your response. This is what you think is the ideal. In other words, this man, this peace activist, this David fellow, he did the right thing and that eliminated violence and that's what we should do. In which case, women who resist rapists instead of loving them are kind of causal in the rape. Because if they had loved their rapists and said, I love you so much, you can rape me but just know that I love you. That the women by resisting have causality in the rape because they should have acted in a different way to diffuse the situation. So basically what I'm saying is that I'm not, I'm not saying that this is something that people, everyone should do or that this is the ideal. I'm saying that you, well, you then why, 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 why did you give me the story? If you, if you don't you, think it's a good thing to do, I'll, I'll tell you exactly why I'm saying you have to be prepared to take that level of commitment to nonviolence. That's not something I recommend to someone. And you're saying you were, you were bringing up that psycho, you know, people who are sociopaths, they can't be awakened to humanity or someone who's acting that extreme. And I'm saying that's an example of that. It is possible that there is that, that kind of, that being vulnerable, even in an extreme situation, if you're doing it for a reason, for a cause, that can be immensely powerful. I mean, that's the power of, um, you know, the great nonviolent leaders that we have and the, and the, the way they put themselves out there and be, and, and they were vulnerable. Um, it shows that it's possible. I'm not saying everyone needs to do that. Sometimes the most nonviolent thing. Wait, 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 wait. So abused, hang on. So this is so, unless you are a political activist, this is useless to you. No, or, no. Or, so, so let me let me give. So, it, so, it's, example, so hang right? on. So, it is useful to you if you're about to be raped. You should say to your rapist that you love him or her. No, no, I wouldn't say that. You can be. You can. You can be. You can express yourself. You can say. Um, you, well, you have a number of choices. First, get the hell out of there. If someone's raping you. Get the hell out of there. I would. But isn't that you know, what David should have done? But he was he was there engaging in an action for a reason, for a cause, to to repair the relationship. So if you're in a relationship with someone who's abusing you, um, and you want this relationship to continue, you don't want to just cut it off. Then you express yourself. You express how much pain you're feeling, and see if that causes a change. See if that person can have empathy for you and really understand you. And if they but don't, no, no, that, then, but that's then not you, what David. That, hang on, but the, sorry to interrupt, but that's not what David sure. did. David didn't say, it's terrifying to me that you have a knife to my throat when I'm aggressing against no one. He said, I love you. Right. So that's not like an example for every situation. I'm just saying that's one example of, of a sociopath like turning around. Well, I'm sorry, how do you know? So that, that's an example of a, if we assume the story is true. And again, this is an anecdote. There's no verification to it. There's no – Right. It's just what I assume what the guy said, right? What David said. I don't know if it's right. true or not. I don't. I mean, because it's an anecdote. It doesn't mean it's false. It's not like the guy said he turned into a unicorn, but I don't know if it's true. But how do we know that the sociopath then changed? 
we don't. I don't know if there was any follow-up studies or tests or anything like that. We, we can't, so we, we don't can't, know. No, you're you're assuming know. a huge yeah. You're assuming a huge yeah. amount there. But let me let me tell you one other. Um, oftentimes, I think you can't know the effect of something that you do on on until a long time. You know, until a long a period of time passes. You know, and the person can process what they experienced. Like um, there's an, another story. If, if it is, it's okay to share. Um, David's mother, for example, she was also an activist. So he's, it's like a couple of generations of activists. Um, um, and she was uh, protesting at a no- nuclear base, basically. And, um, and uh, every day the workers would come in and they were, they were specifically advised to not look at the protesters. Um, and one day the, the worker did look at the protester who was David's mom and she had a smile on her face. Meanwhile, she was protesting. She was, she was waving at him and she was very happy. And meanwhile, she's protesting what they're doing. So nothing, nothing spectacular. 20 years later, she runs into someone at the supermarket and he says, are you the lady who was uh, protesting at that nuclear base? And she says, yes. Why? You smiled at me that day. I wasn't supposed to look at you. That day, I went in and quit my job, and I've never been working there since, just from your smile. Right. So she could have held him in an enemy image and been super angry at him and been like, you're causing all this evil by creating all these nuclear weapons. But she she didn't want to do that because she has a commitment to nonviolence. And so... She was protesting what they were doing while still holding them as a beautiful human, you know. And that has that has a power, I think, that that can really awaken people to to empathy and 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 you know a greater a greater you know the the core of humanity within us can be awakened. Do you know if he's done any work on child abuse? I do not. And just the reason being, you know, and pardon my cynicism, right? I mean, I'm a skeptic, which, you know, doesn't mean anything. But so let's see. He's been in the civil rights movement, leftist. Anti-nuclear testing movement, leftist. Movement to end the Vietnam War, leftist. U.S. Central America peace movement, leftist. Anti-apartheid movement, leftist. Movements to end the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, leftist. It's kind of a cliche. And, And the reason that bothers me is not because I disagree with all of these movements, but rather because it's um, it's very predictable, that the causes that he's involved in. Um, like, if he had thrown his weight into, you know, let's stop child abuse, if he'd thrown his weight into, let's expose women's capacity for evil to break the cycle of violence and so on, that would have been against the cliche handbook of leftist stereotypes. And I think that would have done a lot more good and all the frou-frou that he would have gotten involved in. Like, so it's great that they have these stories about a guy had a knife to my throat and I told him I loved him and he ran out of the room. And my mom smiled at a guy who quit his job. So these are all fine anecdotes and so on. And I guess they move people who prefer anecdotes to facts. But my approach on ending violence 
is to do a huge amount of research into what causes violence. Right? And what causes violence is not a lack of people saying that they love someone who's about to stab them. What causes violence is not a lack of people smiling at people who work at a nuclear power plant. What causes violence is child abuse. Now, if you are dedicated to a particular cause, you need to be as responsible as humanly possible about that cause, which means throw away all your dogma, throw away all your cliches, throw away all the answers that people have given you, and look at it and wrestle with it as if you were completely new to the planet. We get letters, many letters a week, calls, you've heard them, people saying, I'm not hitting my children anymore. Now, we don't overplay these. I talk about them from time to time. Uh, But these are, I guess, I mean, I can't prove it. I don't have cameras in people's houses, but I believe them when they say that they're no longer aggressing against their children. Well, there's a measurable reduction, not just in the present reality of human violence, but in the future reality of human violence, there is a reduction. Measurable. Tangible. You know, we can extrapolate and play the numbers any which way you want. I choose to believe that of the couple of million podcast downloads and video views we and books that we have a month, that at least a few thousand people are deciding to stop hitting their children. That's 1%. That's not, I'm not saying half the people are, 1% a month are deciding not to hit their kids. I make a pretty good case for it. And I talk about it a lot. This is, you know, when I talk to people about donate to this show, donate to this show so that we can take a few thousand to a few tens of thousands of people not hitting or punishing their children, to millions of people, to tens of millions of people, to hundreds of millions of people not punishing or hitting their children. That is when you take the science rather than the leftist cliches about how to deal with the problem of human violence. And I don't need stories because I have facts. I don't need butterfly effects of smiles in a lineup because we have pretty verifiable, pretty measurable estimates of the amount of human violence, both present and future, that this show is eliminating every day, week, month, year, and into the decades. So let's say 3,000 people a month decide to stop hitting their children as a result of this show. Or let's say 1,500 people, doesn't really matter. Let's say those people have two kids each. Well, that's three to 6,000 children a month who are no longer being punished or hit. 36,000 to... 72,000 children every year not being hit, not being punished, not being aggressed against. Not bad for a day's work. And we're going to only grow from here. So listen, I mean, I'm, I'm not, not a bad guy. I'm glad he's out there doing what he's doing. 
but I am suspicious of anecdotes. I don't want to hear that someone ran out of a diner. I don't want to hear that someone quit their job. I want to know what are the facts. I am (laughs) a businessman. I am an empiricist. And stories hold about as much weight to me as the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter. They're just stories. What I want to know is, how has your life's work measurably reduced the amount of violence in this world? Well, civil rights movement, kind of dicey. Kind of dicey. Anti-nuclear testing movement, hey, I think it's great that they're not testing nukes as much anymore. The Vietnam War, I don't think they ended much about that. Anti-apartheid movement, well... South Africa is now the rape capital of the world, but nobody cares because it's black-on-black violence, and who gives a shit about that, right? And the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't think he did much about that. But he's got stories about guys running out of diners and people quitting their jobs. Unverifiable, unprovable, unfollowed up. I am a businessman. When I was in business, I needed measurable tangible, practical results. Not some salesman coming up to me and say, well, I talked to a guy at a conference. He seemed really interested in the product. (laughs) I don't see how that puts a dollar in the bank to pay the employees. Now, I think that if people dedicate themselves to peace, they need to rise above cliches. They need to rise above anecdotes. They need to rise above unverifiable stories and they need to dedicate themselves to the science and they need to dedicate themselves to that which is measurable. Like when, and understand, I'm just telling you my perspective. I'm not trying to disprove what this guy's done. Maybe he's done some fantastic stuff. But it reminds me of when Bill Gates started getting involved in humanitarian work. And he'd ask, he'd chip out all these mosquito nets to all these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations, these charities, And he wouldn't hear anything back. He'd pick up the phone. He'd say, well, what happened to these mosquito nets? Oh, yeah, we handed those out. Well, where did you hand them out? Are they still working? I mean, who got them? Where did they go? And he's like, oh, I don't know. We've got that written down somewhere. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't give me your anecdotes. Give me the facts. Where did they go? I need to get this stuff tracked. Can't manage what you can't measure. And I have annoyance. I'm just telling you my subjective opinion. I'm not saying this is proof. I have annoyance with this guy you're quoting. I think it's great that he got involved in all the trendy leftist causes, and I think it's great that he's got some nice anecdotes. And I'm sure he's heralded as a hero in many circles of cliches. But I sure as shit wish he'd worried a little bit less about nuclear power plants and a little bit more about child abuse. Because if if the left had been working on child abuse in the 50s, I might have not been hit in the 60s and 70s and 80s. If the left had dropped all their trendy causes, which is not to say that they're unimportant causes or whatever, but if they'd really gotten to the root of the problem, if people like this David guy had been focusing on a child abuse, on the death of the family on the necessity of fathers. If this guy had on his resume 
that he fought against the welfare state as the violent redistribution of hard-earned income? Because the welfare state sure as hell is violence. But that's not on the leftist agenda, so that doesn't exist. And the leftist agenda relies upon feeding the resentments of women rather than holding them responsible, just as it feeds on the resentments of minorities rather than holding them responsible, because it needs to portray capitalism as fundamentally inegalitarian, so they need to provoke resentment and create victims rather than remind people of their moral responsibilities and rail against the victimhood of imaginary inequality. If they had done that, if they'd followed principles in science, rather than following the communist handbook of destabilizing the family destabilizing the West. Well, if he'd focused on the welfare state, the destruction of the family, and child abuse, well, I could have had a different childhood, but he didn't. He did all this stuff that didn't change how one child was treated. In fact, by ignoring things like the welfare state, the destruction of the family, and avoiding child abuse, particularly women's role in child abuse, He didn't do that which would have measurably reduced human violence. Instead, he pursued a leftist agenda, and all he has to show for it is some unverified anecdotes, based upon what you've told me, based upon the little I know. So I'm not saying this guy did anything bad or wrong. I'm just telling you that my childhood could have benefited a hell of a lot more from people focusing on child abuse, divorce laws, the welfare state, father absenteeism, and all that stuff. If this guy had circled back, if he really cared about the black community, if he had circled back from the civil rights movement, had gone back to the black community and had said, whoa, (laughs) affirmative action, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's no good. That's not That's not the post-racial society we were aiming for, so stop that shit. No, bet you didn't. Did he circle back to the black community and say, whoa, no, 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 no. No, you can't have father absent households in 75% of the black community. That is a disaster. These, These kids need fathers. The welfare state is really bad for the black community as it is for the white community, but he didn't. He just keeps moving on from leftist cliche to leftist cliche with a whole bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing, leaving behind a trail of unverified anecdotes. I think that is a waste. So I'm so sorry to end on that note, but I do need to get to the next caller. I really, really appreciate you uh, calling in. And um, if you see this man and you're over 40, he can teach you empathy, apparently. All right, Mike, who do we have up next? All right, up next is Nicole. Nicole says, I find it difficult to stick with my goals as if I'm in a bipolar relationship with myself. One week I'm saying, you have what it takes, go for it, baby. Another week it's, I don't think it's working out, we should take a break. How does one teach themselves the vital skill of self-discipline? Hmm. Hmm. Is there any particular project you have in mind? Oh, wait. uh, Nicole dropped off. Oh, dear. What, she couldn't even commit to the call? (laughs) Are you kidding me? <laughs> All right, I guess we're not going to go to Nicole. We're going to go to Tyler. All right, up next is Tyler. Tyler wrote in and said, Why is it when I am open and honest with people, I push them away rather than connect with them? <laughs> All right. You want to you wanna fill in those uh, cracks a little more there, brother? Okay. Uh, well, I just feel like uh, every time when I'm trying to make new friends or uh, – 
well, I went to a new job starting January of this year. Uh, you know, meeting new people for the first time, and I just I try to kind of let everything be out there. It's like this is who I am. This is what I do. But I get nothing back. It's usually nine chances at ten negative that come back. Like the feedback I get is negative. And it's like, like what? Like what? What kind of feedback do you get? Well, I, it just gets the sense that they don't want to be around me. Like they don't appreciate. Okay, yeah, you're being honest. Like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you so nice? And I can only wait. Their criticism of you is why are you so nice? Yeah. You mean like are you being like they do they think you're being falsely nice and that uh, you're trying to manipulate them in some way? Maybe I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, example, well, example I can give of this would be the other night. Uh, I know a friend; she's from back home. Uh, I had some extra codfish from home, which is Newfoundland, and uh, I brought it over to her and resisting res- resisting no cliches about newfoundland i see <laughs> and some extra cod some screech <laughs> right. <laughs> well it was fresh codfish and i know some, some I welfare live... checks some... <laughs> right okay got it I, I live in nova scotia now and i've heard what the cod is like up here so i tend to stay away from it unless it's fresh right. but uh anyway i brought it over to this girl's house and uh Earlier before this, uh, she asked me to pick her up some liquor. I did, and I took money from her for the payment of liquor. But I felt – I for myself, I just felt kind of bad that I did that because usually I'm a giving person. Okay, yeah, you want that. Yeah, sure. You know, here it is. Actually, I, I can afford it. free liquor is called enabling rather than generous, but all right. <laughs> Neither here nor there. But anyway, I tossed that in there anyway, and – and can I just make one other joke? Would you mind? Give her. All right. Consummate Newfoundland date. Free liquor and card. All right. Yeah, go on. <laughs> um, but yeah, I left that to her and she just asked me, I was like, why are you so nice to me? Like, I don't get it. She just, and she just told me, she's like, I'm not used to guys not wanting just to have sex with me. I guess that's is she, is she from, that attractive, or is it just Newfoundland standards? I mean, well, she what is. Are you talking? I, I'm not going to lie; she is very attractive. But right. I just instead of losing somebody in my life, why not just make friends? And if I get along with that person, and I get along with her, you know. Do you nice. want to have sex with her? <laughs> um, Come on, it's just you, uh, me, and the rest of time. Come on, you can tell me. <laughs> Well, yeah, sure. It it wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, if she slipped on the card and right, okay. um, <laughs> but so you, know, you do want to have sex with her, but that wasn't your primary motive. No, I mean, so um, if she was like a elderly Asian gentleman, you'd have done the same thing. <laughs> if I got along with him just as fine, right. I drove forty five minutes out of the way today just to give somebody a hand with a car. I mean, with a what? Uh, uh, fixing a car. Do you mean like the thing with four wheels that goes vroom? Yes. 
Okay, sorry, because the way that human beings would pronounce that as cur, I thought you maybe had to shoot like some rabbit dog or something. Okay, but you mean car. Okay, got it. Sorry. I just I don't have to give full train spotting subtitles, but just for those who I actually spent a summer in Newfoundland, so I have a little bit of experience with the accent, but I just want to translate for the non-adept in the field. But so, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm a little nervous here too, so No, no, you're doing great. You're doing okay. great. I appreciate it. But, you know, I just for myself, you know, I just feel like I'm a nice person just for the fact that I'm a nice person. You know, I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to be treated badly, so I just I'm nice. Right. And your problem is that people don't like you for that? It seems like they're more cautious of me. Like they kind of keep at bay or like, I don't know. Now are these people, are they like big city Ontario people? Halifax, which I think makes Medium city Halifax people, right? Yeah. I think it makes the connection there. But, and uh, do you have any theories about big city people? There's a lot of sketchy shit that goes on, and that you should not. And they be grew up with that sketchy everybody. shit. Yeah. Did you grow up in a smaller, like, did you grow up in St. John's or some smaller place? Uh, Fogo Island, if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, Wait, well, is, is that near Mordor? I <laughs> don't know for sure, but all right. Uh, near the Shrouded Isles of the Screaming Damned, or something, <laughs> something like that. So, pretty, pretty small place, right? The uh, population of the entire island is around three thousand. So everybody knew everybody. <laughs> Someone gets on a boat, they have to change the number, right? <laughs> Somebody's gone swimming, boy. Take that number down. Don't know if the cod will get him. Okay. okay. But uh, right. also, I've been thinking too. Uh, I have been depressed for really as long as I can remember. And I do Wait, open up to... I'm sorry about the depression. I tell you, man, you are not making a good advertisement for being nice. Being nice gets you into the friend zone with attractive people, but on the other hand, you are depressed. Yeah. <laughs> but, why uh, do you think you've been depressed? I mean, in all seriousness, Tyler, why do you think you've been depressed? Lonely, I guess. Not really having anyone there for me, uh, do you mean growing up? Yeah. Uh, my mother was, I think, was horrible. Um, my father, I didn't meet him till I was five years old, and I've never really had a good, healthy relationship. Wait, uh, when you say good, healthy relationship, do you mean sort of romantic or? No. Uh, just Holy shit. ACE of nine? Sorry, Mike, just. Uh... Yeah. Just gave that to me. You got an ACE of nine. Okay, I'm just going to run through these. You don't have to give me details, just for those who don't know. Verbal abuse, threats, physical abuse, non-spanking, no family love or support, neglect, not enough food, dirty clothes, no protection or medical treatment, parents divorced, physical abuse towards female adults. Yeah, there's nothing sexist about the ACE. Lived with alcoholic or drug use or a household member depressed, mentally ill, or suicide attempt, household member in prison. Wow, I am so sorry about that. Holy crap. It's, well, I guess it's it's not fine, but at the same time, I guess it did make me the person who I am today, which is not a... I don't think it's a horrible thing, because it's I It's a horrible thing. No, come on. I mean, you, you, 
you, you would you don't want that, right? I mean, you don't want no. that for your kids. You just you don't want that at all. No, well, but I've took this path that I'm struggling through now. But hopefully, someday when I get out of my depression, that where I've discovered philosophy and uh, you, your teachings of the no child oh, yeah. abuse and everything that it, nothing nothing like philosophy to help you with depression. Oh God. It's never going to end. Right, no, because, of course, when you develop self-knowledge, then you've, I think as you're going through, Tyler, I mean, you realize that not a lot of people can handle self-knowledge, right? Yeah. But I think just the circumstances of what I went through and how I handled it, it it is shaping who I am today and yeah. acknowledging of what happened, what mistakes were made. And seeing who I am today and how I can change to become a better person and not repeat what my parents did to me to children that I may have someday. No, look, and I appreciate – look, I really, really appreciate that and and I'm not going to tell you you can't have a great life. Of course you can. Of course you can have a great life. But the reason that – the reason that I'm – pushing back a little bit against this, Tyler, is because if I said to you, well, I'm treating my daughter like shit, I'm ignoring her, I'm hitting her because I want her to be a better person, I want her to live the Nietzsche fantasy that that which does not kill you makes you stronger, which is not true. I mean, you can gain strength out of adversity, but it is certainly not true that that which does not kill you makes you stronger. I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder is rarely associated with a massive amount of emotional strength and health. You can gain strength through adversity, but that's sort of like saying, well, I'm going to become paralyzed to work on my triceps in a wheelchair. Yeah, your triceps will get stronger, but who the hell wants to be paralyzed, right? So, uh, you know, I, look, I appreciate the, the, that way of looking at it, but I'm also concerned because you say that you've been depressed for as long as you can remember, which to me might have something to do with unprocessed grieving. And if you're giving yourself the Sergeant Major self-improvement pep talk of that which hasn't killed me makes me stronger and it's made me into the person who I am, then in a way you are forbidding yourself or calling it a weakness or a self-rejection to grieve for an adverse childhood experience score of 90 fucking percent, which is a wretched way to start your life. So my concern would be that if you are avoiding the grieving of a terrible beginning in this life, then you may not be able to overcome your depression. Because if the depression is the unresolved or unacknowledged need to grieve the damage that was done to you, then the pep talks are not going to solve the problem, if that makes any sense, in my opinion. How would I go through the process of grieving this? Well, I mean, the first thing that you would have to recognize is that it was a terrible, terrible series of things that were done unto you for many years. They were not inevitable. They were chosen. That immense wrong, if not downright evil, was done unto you. 
and you suffered enormously as the result of other people's inattention, carelessness, viciousness, coldness, lack of attention, lack of love, opposite of love, and that this did not just occur within the household with your mother, but in the community, right? Are you going to try and tell me, I don't think you would, that nobody in the community had even the remotest idea of the degree to which you were suffering as a child, as a little boy at home? They knew. And what did they do? Nothing. Nothing. They questioned why I didn't get drunk or smoke or do drugs. Right. Right. You see, child abuse is not a family problem. It is a tribal problem. It is a social problem. And dealing with the immediacy of child abuse in the home is only the beginning of the tragic journey that teaches you more than you ever, ever wanted to know about the society that you live in. Your mother was only able to do what she did because society allowed her to, covered up for her, in a way encouraged her. Society is the enabler, and the abusers are the enactors. But society is like the driver of the getaway car at the bank robbery, without whom the bank robbery could never occur, because you can't get away on foot, right? And so the abuses that happen to children in all but the most remote locations, and don't get me wrong, you're pretty close, but not there yet, (laughs) right? right? That only occurs because of the active collusion of priests, of teachers, of other children and their parents. Children share a lot. Children share a lot. And you'd be amazed if you could listen into the conversations of other people's families, how much they knew about what you were suffering. And The blind eye that society turns toward child abuse is exactly what child abusers rely on. Which is why there's such a deep shock when conversations like this show comes along or other shows come along where this stuff is openly talked about because that breaks the rule that the abusers relied on that nobody will show their children sympathy. At least certainly not for free, right? And so what was done to you within the home was inexcusable and reprehensible and downright immoral. And it only occurred because your mother and your father, I suppose, to some degree, absent though he sounds he was, could rely on the colluding silence of everyone, right? Yeah. And now you're out into a wider world. You're out in Halifax, right? Yeah. And are you keeping these 90% ACE pretty close to your chest? I'm trying to leave that part of my life behind and move to towards the future, focus on a career, focus on something that's going to make me happy, really start a good life. Um, right now I'm, I'm troubled with a, uh, 
going back because I didn't. Well, for two reasons, I'm troubled about going back there. Is one's because my uh, I have a little brother home, and uh, I just found out that his father has just left. His father not being the same, I can assume, as your father. Yeah, uh, stepfather is now gone. My mom didn't tell me this, uh, but what? How old's your little brother? Just roughly. He's nine. And, uh, well, he's gone now out of the picture. I don't know for how long. You mean the dad? Yeah. Um, My mother told me a couple months ago that she just got a surgery and told me then that she had cancer. I had no idea beforehand. Mm. Um, My grandfather, uh, just a couple weeks ago, was diagnosed to give two to six months left to live and my great uncle has started having start to having heart problems hmm. it just I want to leave it there but my grandfather I know he wasn't the best man but uh, I'm not well, really he sure knew about did he know about what your is this your mother's father? Yes, and he, uh, she raised me in that house till I was about five years old, and I remember some of the horrors that went on there. He was highly abusive to my grandmother. I remember it very rememberable one night that my mom took me brought me over to the neighbor's house because he chased us out of the house. Me, my uncle, my grandmother, my mother chased us out of the house at gunpoint. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember those things and the stories that they said, what happened. And... Uh, I know later years as I was growing up, uh, when my, my, I suppose, ex-stepfather, however you want to classify that now, uh, came in my life, he would occasionally go down there and he told me he regretted everything that he's ever done because I guess he finally realized that, well, he chased everybody away and now he's really alone. Yeah. So, yeah, no, comments a bitch for sure. I, I wanna, I wanna go back and see him for the fact that you know I, I believe that if he did have that time back, he wouldn't have done those things. But you of your grandfather? Yeah. Why? I, why do you believe that? I guess because I have a lot of happy memories with him. Also, just growing up. You know, teaching me how to fish and tie knots and, you know, rabbit slips and stuff like that. It's just, it was good time spent with them. But at the same time, I remember him for the man who he is. And I kind of don't want to have the mental image in my head to see him again with, poison running through his veins now he's uh, he was an alcoholic still is and this is 
why he's dying now due to liver failure. So it, it it's hard because right now my uncle, my two uncles, just went home to do the funeral plans while he's still alive, and the uncle that uh, grew up with me—he's only five years older than me—and he he's kind of in the same position where I am to where. He doesn't want to go back home anymore either. He wants to leave it all behind. He's finally admitting that he is depressed, and uh, I think he wants to go and get help. And every time we go home, me and him, it's always with my mom and my nan. It's always, you know, do this for me. Oh, you don't come home. Dig. They guilt you into picking sides. It's always, you know, oh, you've never done this for me. It's always a guilt trip. And it makes it really hard to want to go back. And when you don't, they'll always always say, oh, you don't come home enough. That, well, use my little brother as, oh, well, he was doing this the other day. You know, he misses you and everything. And just... They have to realize that. So they're very, they're very big on family obligations and being nice and sensitive and caring, right? That's that's their big thing, right? Appear that way because. And how, how was how were they how were they acting that out for you when you were? I mean, did they did they teach you that through their examples of being sensitive and nice and considerate and thoughtful and. I think I learned that mostly from my grandparents on my father's side because they took me every summer until I was about 11 years old, gone, Nova Scotia, PEI, just traveling with me. And I was always with them every summer, and they had a huge impact on my life. I consider them more my parents than my actual parents. And did they know about your 90% adverse childhood experience score? Yes. And what did they do about it? Did they say, we can't possibly let you go back to that torture chamber, to that concentration camp? We can't possibly let that happen. Or did they send you back? At the time, I wanted to go back. Yeah, my daughter wants fistfuls of candy. That doesn't mean she gets them. Yes. So, yeah, they did send me back. And what did they say to you about your mother? Honestly, I can't remember. Did they ever talk to her? Sorry, did they ever talk about her with you? I, I can't remember. So that's probably no, right? Probably. And they raised a son who had, who got married to and had a child with this mom of yours. Um, I'll clarify on that a bit. Um, from what I take, from what was told to me, and this is just me connecting the dots, that I think my dad and my mom were just kind of a one-night thing or a small relationship. And 
I don't know what happened after she found out she was pregnant. All I know is that it got to the point where apparently she brought him to court claiming that I was his child. He was saying no, and my grandmother was looking after me when I was a baby. Well, all this was going on. I don't know why he never said yes, or I, I don't know why he wasn't there. You mean why he wasn't? Did you marry your mama now? No. And you didn't meet him until you were five? Yeah. And the and has he has he ever accepted paternity? Has there ever been a paternity test? Yes. And uh, he is the father? Yeah. So he was wrong? Yeah. And so he fathered a son who he did not see for five years because he mistakenly thought that he was not the father. I guess. I mean, I, I would have assumed... Don't guess. I mean, you're telling me the story. I'm just trying to put it together. Tell me if I'm wrong. I would have assumed that it would have been done earlier, like when I was you actually born. Test? Yeah, like when yeah. I was actually born. Well, certainly if there's contention, that's one of the things you do, right? Not when I was like four years old or five years old. You know, it seems a little delayed there. And I guess you can't get a lot of facts out of people these days, right? Well, if I ask my mom, she holds that much resentment towards the man. She's only going to say he didn't, he never wanted you, and which she's she's told me before because I've went to go in there one summer, and uh, this is what she told me: "Oh, why are you going in there with him? He never wanted you. He never raised you, and you know." Yeah, but the fact of the matter is, he didn't want her. Yeah. I mean, if he'd loved her, if she was a great woman, he probably would have been happy to get married and raise you, and it was her that he didn't want, right? Yeah. I don't know what my father's opinions are about me, but I know he couldn't stand living with my mom. So he left. Of course, two babies, well, we could figure out a way to deal with her, but he couldn't. I mean, he was in his 30s. I was six months old. Of course, I was going to be able to figure out what he couldn't figure out, which is how to stand her. But I don't think he had any animosity towards me. But he sure shit didn't want to spend time with my mom. I, uh, well, I, I keep in contact with him. Uh, this is... Right now is probably the best relationship that I've ever had with him to where I can actually, you know, talk to him about work and my car and, you know, just what's going on in my life, what I'm doing, new. But not your history. No. I. That's not. Listen, man, I, I appreciate that you're having good chats with your dad, and I'm not going to say that's anything wrong with that, but you need to keep moving your needle. You need to keep raising your standards. You need someone that you can talk about this stuff with, right? Sounds like you're a young man. This is all pretty raw. This is all pretty fresh. And this has had a huge defining impact on who you are. And it needs to be part of your conversations with people. 
Now, I'm not saying you got to go blarp on your dad or anything, but what I'm saying is I'm glad I'm glad that you're talking with your father. I think that's great. But you need to be conscious of the limitations and say it could be a worse relationship. In other words, we could not be talking or could be yelling at each other all the time, but it's a very limited relationship as it stands. Is that fair? Yeah. That's fair. And that doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong, but you need to be aware that it's limited because you need to keep raising your standards about what it is to have a relationship, right? Yeah. I mean, seriously, if you could talk to him, you wouldn't be talking to me, right? <laughs> I'm glad you're talking to me. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm glad that you're talking to me. But you know you can talk to me about this stuff, but you can't talk to your family about it, right? I just – they worry about me so much. My grandparents do, and he does too. And it's – Well, I don't on, want to cause them distress. I just – I feel – no. God, I feel like I'm just getting these Hallmark cards with sharp edges flicked at my eyeballs. <laughs> Look, if they care about you so much, then they should want to hear about what's really bothering you, right? They do, but I know what I have to say. No, do they? How do you know they do? You well, start talking to them like you're talking to me. What happens? All I see is worry in their face. Good. Well, I'm glad that they're worried about you. They should be worried about you because you were horribly abused as a child. They should damn well worry about you. It would be nice if they'd worried about you a bit more while you were being abused as a child. But they should worry about you. Not that, you know, you're going to jump off a bridge or anything. But yes, you went through some damaging, damaging stuff. And they can help you by listening and answering all of your questions. My God, do you know how much peace there is in the facts of your history? Just knowing the facts of your history. I have answers to maybe half the things I want to have answers to. And that's given me an enormous amount of peace with my history. The other stuff, be nice to know. I'm never going to know. But I have enough answers that I have some peace. Because wherever there are unanswered questions, we go back you know, it's like when you're a kid and you lose a tooth, your tongue keeps going back to the gap. We tend to get drawn backwards to the unanswered. The predators of absence hunt us forever. There's a great quote that actually, I mean, I just, I watched it. This on TV many years ago, The Great Gatsby. Let me just get the quote for you. I've read it on this show before, but it reminded me of this. Let me just get it for you. Typing on a tablet. Always a problem. <laughs> ah, here we go. It's the last line of The Great Gatsby. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. It's a, 
It's a fantastic line. And so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. You're trying to row forward, trying to row forward, but there's a current that brings you back ceaselessly into the past. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? All matter will rush in to fill a vacuum. And our attention rushes in to fill the vacuum of unanswered questions. And the more answers you get, the more you can focus on the future. The less answers you get, the more you are stuck in the past, in my experience and opinion. And I appreciate and respect that your father and your grandparents are concerned about you. But their concern should be for you, which means that they should focus on giving you what you need. And they have some apologies to make for putting you in the household of a rampant child abuser. They are responsible for that. Your mother is responsible for what she did. They knew about it. And I'm glad that they did things to help you, like your grandparents took you for the summers and you have some good memories of your grandfather. But they sent you back to a rampant, and it sounds like unrepentant child abuser. And you took that, and you suffered that, and there's a nine-year-old boy who is currently taking that and suffering that right now, right? Yeah. So, in my opinion, my opinion, I don't tell anyone what to do. Just telling you my opinion. There's a nine-year-old boy who needs the family's help. You have a nine out of ten adverse childhood experience score, my friend. And there's a nine-year-old child who is going through what you went through, maybe even worse. The family needs to focus on the questions you need answered and on what can be done to help your half-brother. That's top of the to-do list, in my humble opinion. Your childhood can't be rescued. Your future can be changed. But your childhood can't be rescued. But there is a known, vicious child abuser in the family, right? You know her all too well. And she has a child under her power, right? What does the family need to do? I mean, is this going to repeat, Tyler? That the family turned away from you and how much you were suffering and just let it happen and tried to step in where they could but never talked about it? Do you wish they had acted differently? From the way I see her with him, there is a difference than what I felt with whenever mom was with me and uh, 
my brother definitely, he, he does seem happier than I was. But yet I know there will be times where she will yell and smack and... I mean, what was done to you was literally criminal, right? That's criminal child abuse. Yelling and hitting is not criminal, right? Yeah. Unless she's hitting him across the face or after he's 12. I don't know. That's the law. I don't know if it's Canada-wide. That's the law as far as I understand it and what I've read, but... um, Anyway, I mean, I would suggest keeping an eye on that, if you can, without too much trauma. Yeah. But I do think that trying to get some answers about your childhood is important. Yeah, I I, uh, I did recently start going to therapy. Uh, I've only been to one session. I, I do have more planned in the future. Good for you. So Good for you, man. Um. It's definitely something I've been thinking about for him. Uh, I also do have a uh, half sister on my dad's side. Uh, from what she, from what I like, spawn like fucking fish in a pond, <laughs> like a bunch of salmon in a high stream. Jesus. Anyway, uh, but I was never raised by my father, so I can't really speak for his parenting skills. But she seems. Okay, I mean, a little spoiled, I would say, but I, I don't really know much about that situation. I, I was not as close to her as I am with my brother. But uh, I, I do I do plan on getting a house uh, within next maybe five, six years. And then when they're ready to move out, I mean, if they did want to come live with me and go to college and everything, I, I'd be more than welcome to have them stay with me. But it's just thinking about them getting to that point is the hard part. Right. Right. Now, I'm obviously very thankful and happy that you're going to therapy. I think that's fantastic and essential. Um, What I will say is that you have a lot of secrets to keep in your social relationships. And it is going to be confusing to people because... Other people get that you're keeping at least a secret or two, or that you're not forthcoming, you're not spontaneous, you're not open, you're not relaxed, you're not available, if that makes sense. Because you're managing, you're keeping things at bay, you're, right? Yeah. And people sense that, and it's kind of off-putting. You're hoping to leave the past in the past. You're hoping that there's some switch, some cutoff, where... You can put the past in the past and keep it there, right? Yeah. Listen, Tyler, absent brain injury, are you going to wake up tomorrow not knowing how to speak English? 
No. No. No, you're not, right? Are you going to wake up tomorrow not knowing how to walk or climb stairs? No. No. We can't leave the past in the past because the past is who we are. It's like saying, I wish I could forget English. Or what you speak. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> it's fine. Whatever that is. Newfoundlandese. Newfoundlandese. Aaron? Aaron. Anyway. <laughs> but um, but you can't. I mean, you can't leave the past in the past any more than you can wake up with no hair on your balls in the morning. <laughs> you, you've done puberty. It's past, right? <laughs> Unless you're doing a revival of Thriller, you're going to have to deal with your your voice and your descended naughty bits, right? <laughs> yeah. So there is no leaving the past in the past. And it does, but it doesn't mean the past has to define and dominate everything in the future. You know, the, I mean, the the fact that I had a temper in my teens doesn't mean that I have to be an angry person for the rest of my life. It just means that I had a lot to be angry about, but didn't have the language and the understanding to know what it was and how big it was. I thought my anger was disproportionate to the environment, which is what's called having a bad temper. But it meant, it just means that I underestimated the environment and my anger was telling me how wide and deep child abuse was in society but I didn't understand that consciously, so I thought my anger was disproportionate to the environment, but it wasn't. There's almost no amount of anger that is proportionate to the degree of child abuse in the world. Except maybe the joker with a remote control. So, the fantasy that you can not be somebody who lived through what you lived through is damaging to yourself and to your capacity to relate to others. People who care about you, Tyler, people who are going to grow to love you, need to know who you are. And that you were shaped by what you experienced, for better and for worse. Look, you know a lot about my history too, right? I mean, I've been pretty open about my past and my history. Has that caused you to lose any respect for me or think of me as a lesser or worse person? No. No, I don't think so, right? Well, I mean, you're here now. You're helping me. You you continue to help people. Yeah, so, and I, I sure as shit yeah. probably wouldn't be doing all this work I'm doing in this show. I'd be a safe little libertarian mouthing off about politics <laughs> that would change nothing <laughs> and talking about the minimum wage and foreign trade and trade deficits and the war on drugs and, you know, safely filling my air up with face farts of inconsequential noises, right? But I, you know, I have a responsibility. Since I have the capacity, I have a responsibility to tell the truth as best I can and do the greatest good I can and do the greatest good that I wish had been done before me. I mean, everything I do, I wish had been done. I wish Freud had done it. I wish, you know, Freud um, was one of the first people to really understand the depth of child abuse in 
19th century Vienna where all of these women and men were coming to him with these what hysterical symptoms. I can't feel my arm. I can't see from my eyes, even though my eyes are working according to all medical tests. Pupils are dilating, they're focusing, right? And all of these people were coming to him with these hysterical symptoms. And um, when he began to question them and to try and understand why they might have these symptoms, he heard these abhorrent stories of sexual abuse within these nice upper-middle-class Viennese bourgeois families. He had all these horrifying stories of physical and sexual abuse. And he began to write about them and to talk about them. And then the hammer came down, and he was threatened, and he was bullied, and he felt he or thought he might have been in danger of losing his medical license, which was how he supported his family. And so he changed his tune. He recanted, he retracted. He said, well, okay, so there are these women who are talking about their fathers raping them all the time, which is why they are so disturbed. They were sexually raped. Sorry, that's redundant. They were raped by their fathers. But once I began writing about it, everybody threatened me as threats occur to people who bring the truth, particularly about child abuse. And he recanted and he said, well, maybe that's not the case. Maybe they're just fantasizing about being raped by, maybe they really want to be raped by their fathers. It didn't actually happen, but it's something they dreamt about or wanted to have happened or wished had happened. Poof, then you get the electric complex and the Oedipus complex. So when Freud began to uncover the fairly rampant sexual abuse of children in 19th century Vienna, they threatened him, just as the pedophile's ring shot Aaron Pitsy's duck in America. They threatened him for exposing their crimes against children, and uh, he then recanted and said, well, it can't be real. They must have fantasized it. They must have really wanted to be raped by their fathers and to have sex with their mothers. For the boys, right? It's the Oedipus complex and so on. And he transformed one of the first cries of herd child abuse in the history of mankind into an assault upon the very mental health of Western society. I don't believe it's a complete accident that after this immense betrayal of children by Freud, we ended up with the First World War. I don't believe that is a coincidence at all. But all the causality is not particularly essential right now. But when I began the show, I knew that story very well. And I remember saying to myself, no matter what is thrown at you, you will not back down. You will not back down from receiving and validating the truth of the victims you hear because you know what it is to be a victim, and you know what an awful betrayal it is to withhold any level of love and empathy and support and care and concern and validation from the victims of child abuse. And you know that war may hang in the balance, because if the abusers can cow public figures into backing off from their sympathy for the victims, and the sympathy for the victims includes reminding them of their right not to see their abusers should their abusers prove intransigent, 
and continue the abuse? That the future of the species may hang in the public acceptance of the truth spoke by the victims of child abuse and of the very public sympathy and empathy and getting to the help they need through therapy of the victims of child abuse. And I very clearly remember saying that to myself, that if I'm going to talk about these most essential of issues, that I will not pull a Freud and I will not back down from any pressure whatsoever. I will not back down from the media. I will not back down from the haters. I will not repeat the mistakes of the past. Freud himself was a victim of childhood sexual abuse, as was Jung. So in backing away from the victims they received into their offices, they also got to back away from their own pain. And so there is a great deal of challenge Tyler, in talking about these issues, lots of people have been hurt in this world as children. Most people have been hurt in this world as children. And when you talk honestly and openly about these things, it is very difficult for people. And this is why it tends to continue and continue and continue. And who knows for how many generations this has occurred within your mother's family and perhaps even to some degree your father's family. And if you can get to the truth of what happened, if you can understand why people made the decisions that they made. Even if you don't agree with the reasons for those decisions, knowing the reasons for those decisions is enormously important, in my opinion. The more we know the truth of the history, the more confidently we can face the future without self-blame. Children have a remarkable ability to blame themselves for what goes wrong in a family. It's the only sense of control that victims of child abuse can experience, right? I remember doing it. Yeah, I did it, you did it, and we will do it. It's what, it's what you do to survive, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's a, I watched this documentary a little while back ago about a bad mountain climb a guy fell into a big gully of ice he did broken his leg fell into a big gully of ice and he couldn't climb up it was too ice right couldn't climb up and uh, so he had to climb down it was the only hope he had to climb down hope that there's some way out through the bottom well, that's what we have to do to keep going down even when you're desperate to get up and out to keep going down he found a way out actually survived crazy bastard good for him <laughs> And uh, it's not that you're too nice, in my opinion. It's that you're carrying a heavy burden that you have to hide. It's literally like you're walking into a party pretending you're riding a horse. And everyone sees you pretending to ride a horse and they say, what are you doing? Why are you pretending to ride a horse? And you're saying, horse? What horse? <laughs> right? You got a history. And the history is who you are. The history is who I am. You can do great good with that history, with the strength that comes from surviving that history. It does not make the history good, does not make the history worthwhile, but you can do some great things with it. But I wouldn't necessarily blame everyone else at the moment. You've got a lot of unprocessed history, I think, that you're trying to keep away from. 
And until you can be honest and open and forthright about that history without needing things from people, in other words, like I can talk about my history, I don't need things from people. I mean, it, I think it's nice if they hear, it's nice if they sympathize, but I don't need for them to do that. I've got closure for most of my history. And you're a young man. It took me a long time. You may do it way faster than I did. Every generation usually gets a little smarter. But um, once you can get to a place through therapy and through conversations with your family about your history, once you can get to a place of some certainty and some closure, which is basically closure is certainty and certainty is assigning rational levels of responsibility to the actors, right? When you're a, chi a child, it's terrifying to think that your parents are out of control, so you pretend that you're the cause of their behavior because then you can pretend to have control. Oh, if I did this and I do bad, I do that, I clean up, or I, you pretend that you can manage the insanity around you by pretending that the insanity comes out of your behavior. It's natural. But that which defends you as a child entraps you as an adult. You, you know, you, the hugs that you give yourself as a child turn into the straitjacket that confines you as an adult. Yeah. And closure to me about the past is simply accepting and assigning rational levels of responsibility to the actress. You as a child had no capacity to affect the outcome of the adults around you in any practical or fundamental way. The adults did, but were limited. I don't know what was going on. I don't know what the laws are in Newfoundland. I don't know what custody means or anything like that. But they were adults, which means they had infinitely greater power to influence and affect the outcome than you did as a child. So simply giving people that responsibility and remembering and accepting the helplessness means that you stop trying to control crazy people. Once you stop trying to control crazy people or bad people by assigning them responsibility you don't have to keep recreating that in the present. So that's a very sort of brief sprint, but I hope that gives you some help. Uh, it, it definitely does. Um, gives me a lot more to think about. Yeah. Yeah, will you give us a, a drop us a line, let us know how it goes, and, and just before you answer that, I'm, I'm, I'm so incredibly sorry for what you experienced as a child. Everyone should have great parents. Everyone should have peace and security. Uh, as children, I'm very sorry about everything that you went through. Thank you. Um, I do have, uh, if we got time and if it's okay, uh, just one quick question. Uh, quick is good. Possibly quick. Uh, well, if it's not quick, then you can just tell me. Uh, mm -hmm. For some reason, and I've thought about it a lot too, that every time when I've been around uh, marijuana, uh, hard drugs I've rarely seen. Uh, I keep that at bay as much as possible. But marijuana just seems to be everywhere. Whenever I smell it, uh, even if it comes up in a conversation or if I see it on TV, Facebook, anywhere, I get a very strong urge of repulsion towards it. Like I feel my arms when it comes up in a conversation and it just doesn't go away fast. It just, you it, feel your arms? Sorry, I just want to make sure I understand what that like means. 
yeah, like a physical tension come over me. And it just, I don't know, it just makes me, like, I got to shake out my arms afterwards. Oh, I see. Just, and but was was there any uh, marijuana around when you were growing up? Marijuana smoke or? Um, not until my stepfather came around. Smoke, no. Uh, I did smell it every now and then. He did use it. Uh, stopped later on. Um, but for what I can remember, the only time that it had ever come up in my childhood would be in school. Hmm. And the only explanation that I can get from it, that why I don't like it as much, and I still think of it as an excuse, would be that I just think people use it as an excuse to get out of their sane and rational mind to get away from this world to go somewhere else and basically they're using this as a blanket to cover up all their problems and think it's going to be the miracle solution of the world which in reality it's the same thing as taking your dirt and sweeping it under the carpet right right no and i you know i mean I have a great deal of sympathy for the self-medication requirements that people feel they need from bad childhoods to various psychostimulants and various addictive behavior. To me, it is a form of, not just to me, but it's a form of self-medication. And as I've mentioned many times on the show, Gabor Mate's In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is very important to read in this area to understand why people are drawn towards this stuff. I dislike the smell of uh, of weed. And... For me, the reason for that is that every time I smell it, to me, it's just it's a tragically evaporated and missed opportunity for an increase in self-knowledge. It is is like taking painkillers when you have a toothache. Yeah, you'll feel better in the moment, but your tooth is just going to get worse. And what bothers me about marijuana, and this is true of a lot of drugs, is that there is a cliche of coolness about it that you don't see smokers of cigarettes trying to emulate. And what I mean by that is the smokers are like, yeah, it's a bad habit. I should quit, you know, but I'm addicted. But there's not this Bob Marley, open your mind, cool crap about it. And if you say, you know, I think that cigarette smoking is bad for you and people shouldn't smoke, people are like, yeah, okay, I get it. It is bad for you. People shouldn't smoke. But they don't say, well, it opens the doors of perception and allows me to see all the deep interstellar fragments of Doritos that tell me all about the universe and it doesn't, you know, all that shit. They don't defend it. They don't defend it. Yeah, it's a bad habit. Shouldn't do it. Got addicted. Bad decision. Whatever, right? But the thing that bothers me about the pot smokers is, look, it is not opening the doors of self-perception. You are self-medicating for trauma. And I get that. I mean, I understand why. I sympathize with that. But what bothers me is this cool aura, this, you know, you just don't get it, man. You know, if you haven't tried them, you know, you just don't get it. You know, it's like, yeah, okay. I I haven't tried killing anyone either. That doesn't mean I can't have an opinion about killing. 
right? I'm not putting them on the same moral plane, but, you know, I've never strangled a kitten in a bag. That doesn't mean that I can't say whether strangling kittens in bags is necessarily positive or negative. Never sawn my own leg off. That doesn't mean I can't have any opinions about that, for Christ's sake. It's just one of these bullshit defenses that people put up. Look, it's tragic that people feel the need to smoke pot. I, get, I mean, biologically, I think I understand roughly the the medical reasons behind it, and I think it's really tragic. But there's this kind of invulnerable, you know, don't be such a square, open your mind, it's perception, and it's cool, and it expands your consciousness, and blah de blah de blah de blah de blah It's like, no, you're just fucking with your brain, that's all. And it is not a courageous way to deal with personal problems, to put it as nicely as I can. And I get, if people are addicted, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. It's tough. It's tough to give up those kinds of addictions. But nobody says, well, you know, when I drink alcohol, I'm just really cool and uninhibited. And when I drink to blackout, I, I, I open the doors of perception and really understand things about the universe that I didn't before. And I see music and, and smell color and, you know, all this sort of shit. They just say, no, I got a drinking problem. Well, they may deny it, but they don't say that there's anything really great about drinking or smoking cigarettes or whatever. And every time I brought up the argument, you know, to people that, you know, you shouldn't be smoking that, oh, well, why? And brought up the argument, you know, well, what is it really doing for it? And then they always come back to me, well, what do you drink? And this is actually one of the things that I've, I'm planning to stop drinking altogether. Right now, I've just cut out buying beer to if I go out to a restaurant just to have one and that's it. You know, they're not going to let you back into Newfoundland now, right? <laughs> I mean, they'll hear the show. They'll track you down. I mean, you're, you're done, man. They're not letting you back in. Well, my health you're over 12? Not drinking? Can't come in. <laughs> but Sorry. It's one I'll tell things. you why, but I'm wasted. Anyway, go ahead. One of the things I've tried to stop because really I've – just realized that, well, why do I like getting drunk? Why do I like that feeling? And it just occurred to me that, well, how do I feel when I'm drunk or buzzed? Or, Well, how I feel is fantastic. I'm not worrying about anything. My mind is a million miles away. I'm not worried about home. I'm not worried about my brother. I'm not worried about my past. I'm, you know, everything is blank for a moment. If I'm at a party, loaded, stuff like that, and I just don't remember, which is really not a great way to live, because then I'm, I'm not in my right mind, as I yeah. see it. I'm not. Yeah, it's a it's a short term right. gain, it's a long term pain, and of course, a lot of drinking is to do with managing social anxiety, uh, and it doesn't really help with that. Anyway, listen, man, I'm sorry to to jump. No, nope. uh, but it's been an almost four-hour show, and uh, I need to uh, take care of my own brain, not have it taxed too much. I'm just going to end up. But thanks for calling. Please let us know how it goes. Congratulations on getting into therapy. I'm immensely happy about that. As, as always, I think that's wonderful. And um, quote uh, David Hartso. Hartso. This is uh, the guy who the uh, I, I smell nonviolent communication all over that guy. Um, for better or for worse. And um, this is a quote. So his his father was a minister. And uh, this uh, peace activist, uh, Waging Peace, I think was the name of his book, he said, 
Quakers believe that all people are created by God. We're all children of God, so we are brothers and sisters. So we have a responsibility to one another if someone is hungry or in prison or in a war zone. Quakers try to live by their values and beliefs, love and compassion and comparing for one another, and caring for one another and for the planet and the environment. And um, as I said, this is um, the religious fantasy that we all have a soul, and the soul is put there by God and cannot be destroyed or fundamentally corrupted because the soul is always available for salvation. And so in the religious mindset, there's no such thing as sociopathy. There's no such thing as a a brain fundamentally altered by childhood because you always have a perfectly healthy brain, like a ghost brain within your brain, like emergency backup in case of emergencies, break glass. In, In case of sin, break glass and use your emergency backup brain called your soul, which has never been harmed. Uh, This is, of course, a complete fantasy. It's like telling smokers, don't worry, you have a perfect set of ghostly lungs uh, that is backed up. And, you know, if you get lung cancer uh, in these lungs, uh, don't worry, you have God's backup lungs, which can never be damaged by cigarettes, which you can use. Uh, This we would consider to be ridiculous and dangerous superstition when talking about medicine. I consider this even more pernicious and a dangerous superstition when talking about the brain. Uh, the brain is a physical organ. There is no ghostly backup brain. There is no soul which cannot be corrupted that you can get access to should you happen to not do well in the management and care of your mental health or your mind. Doesn't happen, isn't there. And so when he is attempting to bring peace to the world, then he is fundamentally wrong because he believes in something called a soul and he believes that we are all uh, brothers and children of God and therefore there's there's fundamentally no such thing as sociopathy. And even in the story that the caller mentioned where... The man turned and said, I love you. Well, he's talking to the soul of the man put there, put in the man by God. He's loving the soul of the man put in there by God, which doesn't exist any more than he's got a ghost in his left nutsack. And so then, according to this mythology, empathy can suddenly arise within the brain because the man can switch to his emergency backup God soul, right? His parachute, his whatever, right? And this is just is fundamentally, so fundamentally incorrect that it is like me being in a computer company and saying, it's not a computer bug, it's a, it's a malevolent demon in the computer that is causing the problems in the, say, Obamacare website. It is a Republican devil that has been put there by a witch doctor. And people would look at me, are you saying that there's a devil in the computer? And that, I mean, are you in, like, you need mental health help. Like, you are so fundamentally incorrect about how to diagnose computer problems. I don't even know what to say to you. This is not even remotely part of a rational conversation. And so when he says, well, we're all children of God, we're all brothers and sisters, and blah, 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 blah. No. No, 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 no. No soul. There's no soul. He also says, it is a central article of faith to seek justice for homeless and hungry people. 
and for prisoners and refugees. And it is crucial to alleviate the suffering caused by warfare. The quote is, sorry, that's a description of his beliefs. The quote, he says, is the causes of war are nationalism and greed and imperialism, and we have a responsibility to address those causes of war. No. No, no, and no. He basically is saying that the cause of war is sin. Which is like me saying the cause of your broken arm is a pixie that has it in for you and is dressed in a ninja costume and is bearing a flaming sword forged by elves. I mean, just try being a doctor and saying that to a patient. The only patient who would believe you would be the patients you really don't want to have. No, the causes of war are not nationalism and greed and imperialism. The causes of war are child abuse. Now, why can someone not see that? Because he's religious or was raised by a religious man. And religion, in most of its manifestations, not all, but in most of its manifestations, religion is child abuse. Because you're telling children something is true which you cannot prove and you are relying on your size and power and authority and the child's naivete, dependence and inexperience and unformed brain. You are relying upon that to have the child believe you. Not a lot of priests go up to Christopher Hitchens in his prime and attempt to convert him to their religion because he'd leave them a smoking pile of cynical whiskey-fumed dust. But they'll go to five-year-old kids and fasten their mental jaws upon that tender young mind and bend it to their will and way. So why can he not see the true cause of war as child abuse? Because he's religious and or was raised by a minister. And therefore, he was told about hell and he was told about sin and that Jesus died for him and all that, all of which is highly toxic and abusive towards children. So, of course, he can't see it. It would be unthinkable to imagine that he could. And so he spends his life inhabiting cliches rather than solving problems. Hope that helps. Thanks, everyone. You love the show. You like the show. You listened for four hours. Come on, 10 bucks a month. You can do it. You can do it, baby. FDRURL.com slash donate. Have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. We will talk to you soon.